The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 25 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network proudly presents to you the Trios Tag Team Champions of the World, the Master Library Kevin Hellions, Sweet Maddie Treats, and the Educator of Excellence, collectively known as The House Show. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of The House Show. It is me, as always, Mr. Matty Treats, and I am joined by my Trios Tag Team Partners. To my right is the unrivaled one, the Edu-Hunter, Mr. Educator of Excellence. The Educator, how are you doing today? Hello, my good sir. Hello, everybody listening in tonight. Man, we're a couple of days into the school year up north, and... uh... Oh, just trying to get back onto a normal sleeping pattern here. Does it feel like fall yet for you um, being back in in class now? No, it's been a sweat box in my classroom. Um, Well, we're not really in there for too, too much because I'm doing driver ed this year as my primary instructional duties. No more science whatsoever. So uh, in and out of the building for the most part for most of the day. Uh, But it is still very well. I'm in my classroom. I'm, uh, you know, today is like the official start of fall for me because the NFL kicks off. So there it very, is. Ex- very excited about that. And let's go to my left is my NFL expert. None other than Kevin Hellions, the mass library. Kevin, who are, are you excited for this year's season? Oh, geez. I mean, it, it's tough to pick one. Uh, do, do the Dan Marino, um, Flutie Flakes. Uh, I remember when the Bears wrapped. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. Is that on your list of like a hundred and other things to do instead of watching the Super Bowl is watching the Bears wrap on YouTube? No, no, no. That's no. YouTube doesn't count for that yearly article. Oh, okay. Has to be on TV. It's the one article that you write every year that I actually read. No, thanks. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's right. hey, hey, I went to my local comic book store and they were talking about the article I posted earlier today. So Oh, that's good. Some someone's reading stuff. That's good. Well, <laughs> they're, they're you know, they read comics, so. Yeah, I mean, you buy them, you just don't read them. Well, I don't really I, buy them. I bought one thing of comics because it was a really good deal that I plan on selling on eBay. <laughs> and actually, I just kind of buy it to mock you with it. But uh I'm getting a little worried, guys. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why. I, I think Big Buddy's on to me. Uh-oh. Okay. Big Buddy? Big Buddy. Um, so I went on the lovely website known as eBay.com. And oh, no. There was a Jake the Snake Roberts Tonka wrestling buddy. Of course, last week. You know, I won the big auction where I won five of the eight. So I need three more. I need Jake and LOD. And uh, yeah, the uh, Jake Roberts, I went to go buy it, right? And my card got uh, blocked for fraud. 
Wow. Big Buddy's watching. That's on, not good. On eBay, or was there something else? It was on eBay. Isn't that the weirdest thing? But you buy stuff on eBay all the time. All the time. Now, did they possibly do some sort of demographic thing? And they said, why is a man in his 30s without a wife and child suddenly buying stuffed animals? Clearly, this is fraud. Uh, Number one, they're not animals. They're my friends. (laughs) And number two, if you buy the stuffed animal, you get the stuffed hawk with it as well. Oh, (laughs) there it is. uh, No, so Big Buddy is watching. Uh, yeah, so my card got declined. It got blocked. So I had to call, you know, customer service. And, of course, no one is in the office. So that takes forever. And I lost the auction for the Jake Roberts. Any idea what it uh, finally went for? No idea. I was so frustrated that I threw my phone against the wall. Not smart. Uh, it's okay, though. It is. It is okay. But, uh, you know, but I think not only is Big Buddy on to me, but I'm also thinking Big Collectible is on to me. Because, uh, Kevin, you know, we have a story to tell you, me and the Edu Hunter here, because. I've been waiting. It's crazy. When I, when I did the Unrivaled song, he had just found the figures for me. He had not given them to me. Of course, we live in different areas of New York State. So we had to meet in a mutual place and exchange the figures okay in in public well lit yeah in pl- public well lit so we decided like to 3:30 go 3:30 in the afternoon crazy three, yeah 3:30 in the afternoon we decided to go to a mall that is in the middle in the Syracuse area we went to Destiny USA and i think the roaming security thought we were doing a drug deal yeah so i'm walking up to Matt and uh, he, he he's by the entrance near the food court so you know how you have to go up the escalators to go to the food court right so yep. the outside entrance I walk uh, around on one side and they have the kind of like the drive through area where you could technically drive up and drop people off to the main door they have it blocked off so I, I parked my car and I'm walking and I have the four figures they're packed two in a like a walmart bag and i have the walmart bag the way that their figures were in there the the handles were like tied up so they're like in the walmart bags so i'm walking in towards the mall with the two figures each in a bag and matt's on the opposite side of the uh kind of like the overpass where you know cars could drive in drop people off and his back is to me as I'm walking to him, towards him, and I'm assuming it was him because we had made plans to meet up there. So I kind of yell out, hey, Treats, is that you? I got the stuff. <laughs> it also, it, it doesn't help that he goes, hey, Treats, you got the stuff. And I say, is that you, educator? Yeah. So we're not using our government names. <laughs> right. So, um... We, I start approaching him, and uh, one of the mall security agents we is like, will, hey, you, We here. will name him uh, Paul Blart. Paul Blart, fine. He's like, hey, you, come here. And I look at him. I turn and look at him, and obviously, you know, it's no secret. I'm a pretty big guy, and this mall security guard, honestly, um, probably 20, what, 23, 24 years old. Yeah, it just seemed like a like a kid and like an entry level security yeah. job. 
150 pounds, 160 pounds at most. He looks like Jason Sensation. Pretty much, okay? Yeah. And he's like, hey, you come here. And I I didn't, like, approach him. I just turned and looked at him. I'm like, what? He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm selling my friend a bunch of wrestling figures. Do you want to see them? And he's like, oh, never mind. And I just, like, continue on the conversation with treats. And then we go into the mall, and he asks, can I see your ID for a minute? And I looked at the guy, and I'm like, you want to see my ID? I'm like, "What? why would you need to see my ID? And he's like, can I see your ID? And I just was like, wait a minute. What's going on here? Am I being detained for anything? And he he couldn't respond to it. And then Treats and I just continued to walk into the mall, and we walked away from the guy. It was crazy. Absolutely yeah. crazy. Now, how old did he seem again? I, I would say mid-20s, if that, yeah. you know. He looked like a young I mean, kid. Younger I mean, kid. He was in the demographic of AEW, so maybe he was trying to get the figures for himself. Yeah. Well, what I was thinking is, is he old enough to have been one of the mall security that threw me out of a different mall in oh, the right. area years <laughs> earlier? Yeah, we uh, were the bad boys of the mall of central New York, I guess. So we walk in and we went to uh, that comic and, you know, resale store um, and we walked around and they actually had the same figures there that I picked up for almost double the price that what I was lucky to find them for treats um, at Walmart. It was crazy. I think they were, what, 40 45 Yeah, I think they were for $39.99 a piece yeah. for uh, the AEW figures. So, of course, 45 with tax. So people already uh, reselling them. And, you know, I, I think maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe they thought we were scalpers. I've seen people go into that comic store and walk up to, you know, one of the guys running it saying, hey, I just found these at Walmart, at Target, at, you know, wherever. What can I get for them? Right. So they'll flat out, like, buy it, walk down the hallway pretty much, resell it right there, and then they mark it up and throw it on the shelves. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we were saying that, too, because they had a bunch of graphic novels in there. They probably bought them from Ollie's and then sell them because they had it was like buy two get one free or something like that so because no, uh, like one of one of the stores definitely has it's called diamond it's like the company that sends all the comics to almost well almost all the comics that's all other thing right now to the stores but you have to have an account with them so there was actually a store locally in my area that did not have an account. So people go in there and they're like, oh, this comic's supposed to be out today. They're like, oh, yeah, we didn't get it yet. No, you haven't gone to another store to buy it up yet and then resell yeah. it for a higher price. That's yeah, what happened. Right. Yeah, but uh, so I, I think Big Brother, or excuse me, I think Big Buddy is on to me. <laughs> I think Big Collectible doesn't want me to have all the power. Right. So send your information to a collectible agency. <sighs> no. No. No, it, it, you just avoid those calls. It's easy. So before we get to the breakdown pay-per-view, why don't we um, just kind of tell you guys about a little bit of sponsorship. The retro network has going on uh, pretty much through the end of the year. Uh, if you're looking to great, get some great Halloween costumes, Halloweencostumes.com is sponsoring us uh, in the show notes. You will actually see a link. You click on that link, you go to the website, you get 20% off one item on HalloweenCostumes.com. Also, too, 
There is fun.com, F-U-N.com. You click on the link in the show notes, you get 15% off. But, you know, us at the house show, we do things a little differently. We can just tell you about that. But we have actually scoured the websites, both of them, to find an item of the week. Uh, This is, as everyone knows that has listened to our show, uh, we are big fans of the shilling of merchandise. So whether it's Todd Pettengale, Doc Hendricks, uh, you you know Kevin Hellions, whoever's going to be doing it, we're showing it every week. So uh, why don't I throw it to our item of the week this week? Our first item of the week is the Undertaker ugly Christmas sweater. Now, I know it says Christmas in the description, but honestly, you could wear this for the rest of the year and be in fashion. You see, Halloween's right around the corner, and it's perfect to rock the Dead Man this November. It's the 30th anniversary of The Undertaker's debut in the WWE. And of course, this should be your holiday office party go-to. So visit fun.com, search Undertaker, and add the item to your cart. And if you click the link in the show description, we can save you 15% off that item. So Tombstone Pile Drive those savings and you will be able to rest in peace this year. Thanks to The House Show, The Retro Network, and Fun.com. All right. Um, so that Undertaker Christmas sweater, uh, like I said in, the, uh, in the, the rundown there, you can actually wear it for all three months. You got a Halloween, you got the 30-year anniversary of The Undertaker for Survivor Series is this year. And then, of course, you can wear it for uh, Christmas. So uh, what do you guys think of those two websites? That's a that's a stellar deal for that particular uh, Undertaker sweater. Uh, I love the uh, fun.com in particular. I, I had a chance to peruse through that this past weekend. Man, there's so much uh, video gaming stuff. Mega Man, Legend of Zelda, Super Mario. Oh, good stuff. I mean, really, it's not just Halloween thing. You can wear it up until the end of the year. Uh, like the Undertaker one. Rest in peace on Earth. Goodwill towards mankind. Yeah, that was good, Kevin. I like that one. Um, the good thing, too, is, you know, with the HalloweenCostumes.com, you don't have to just wear it for Halloween. I know, uh, Kevin, your your wife likes to dress up like Pokemon. For for the Declan X channel, that is true. Yeah, so, uh, you know, whatever whatever you guys have going on in, in home, uh, check out both sites. Okay, so why don't we uh, go right ahead and let's cover our first pay-per-view of the night. It is the Brie Bella portion of our Twin Magic episode. It is Breakdown. It took place on September 27th, 1998 in Hamilton, Ontario at the Cops Coliseum. 17,400 people on hand for this event. Um, can you believe that? These Canadian in your house pay per views, man, talk about sellouts and just huge, huge crowds. It's crazy. We got, you know, shows in the States here that were barely getting five or 6,000 people on previous episodes that we've run. And it seems like every Canadian show has just been like 15,000 plus. It took me a couple matches for it to really sink in. Oh, that's right. This is a Canadian crowd. Wow. Just uh, everything about how they acted this on this evening's show was fantastic. Um, but, I, I mean, guys, I'm I'm wondering what you're thinking. We've done a lot of in your house this year. And at the beginning, are you damn sick and tired? 
Yeah, I am damn sick and tired. Uh, of course, I think Kevin is referring to the Vince's master plan video um, that starts off the show. Uh, what did you guys think of this one? You know, we, we have talked about this and I think we have lauded the WWF production team for their intro videos uh, just for how great they are. Where do you think this one ranks? Because this one was annoying to me. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't too much of a fan of it. The whole idea of the premise at the very end of that stone cold, screwed, stone cold. I mean, we just can't let, you know, Montreal from a year ago, you know, just go already. Still trying to just pull at those heartstrings that were in Canada, but it is what it is. I'm not big uh, super fan of this particular video, but it certainly at least planted the seeds for what, you know, what we're expected to see later in the night. Yeah, I mean, it was too much repetition of the same lines from Vince, the same background imagery. It's kind of like an episode of Scooby-Doo when they're running and it's just the background on loop just to kill a minute or two at a time. Yeah. So, uh, Kevin, I have a question for you because you brought it up. You didn't realize that this crowd was in Canada. What match was that when you realized this? Oh, jeez. There was some, like, huge... Oh, when they went crazy bizarro land was the steel cage match interesting because i figured it would have been with our first match which features toronto born edge taking on calgary alberta's own owen hart in our starting match uh edge a 24 year old edge in his first pay-per-view match also too this match features the debut of christian uh so i'm going to start it off with educator because i know you brought up gangrel and the brood on the last episode talking about that attitude era angle and how much you loved it and of course you know shane mcmahon's vampire underground so why don't you uh go ahead talk about this match and uh you know talk about your love for edge uh, we start off with some good back and forth reversals with Owen and Edge uh, doing some kip ups and reversing each other's uh, holds on the arms, working each other's shoulders. At one point of the match, we see uh, Edge outside of the ring and Owen Hart is on the floor and Edge is on the apron. Edge goes to do a running dive off of the apron as almost as if it had been meant for like a cross body. But Owen Hart catches Edge and does a very sickening power slam. And the thud you hear on the floor, ugh, it was just very, very awful sounding. We see Owen trying to do a victory roll, uh, very similar to how he defeated his brother Brett at WrestleMania 10. Even commentary uh, brought that up. He tried to do a victory roll on Edge, but Edge was able to escape after a two count. We see Owen Hart hitting a running heel kick and then eventually hits an Enziguri kick on Edge in the match. Edge uh, eventually recovers from both maneuvers and hits a face-first like electric chair drop. Instead of falling back, he kind of flapjacks Owen forward face-first on the canvas. Eventually, Owen Hart recovers and hits a belly-to-back suplex with a bridge. And it was a very, very long two-count. Eventually, we see Christian, or at least at the time, an unknown person from the crowd, kind of hop the rail, stand right in front, back in front of the hard camera, staring in the match, and gets Edge's attention. And we see, as a result of Edge being distracted, Owen Hart comes up with a roll-up similar to the 
roll-up he used to win his first Intercontinental Championship when he defeated Rocky Maivia. Uh, the double uh, feet under the armpits rolling backwards, and he gets the three count for the 1-2-3 win. Um, I, Treats, I understand what you're saying, but it's the it was the bizarre nature later on because Edge comes through the crowd, he gets a huge pop, he's already, like, fans already love him, but that could have been anywhere at this time. Um, but speaking of things that could have happened at this time, since when does WWF do a rookie of the year? They mentioned Edge must have been the rookie of the year this year, and Owen was one previously. I'm like, I pretty sure that was probably like a PWI rookie of the year, not like an official WWF thing. Um, mentioning Edge, mentioning his connection with Gangrel, I don't understand if you're going to do the whole blood gimmick, why don't you just call it blood instead of repeatedly calling it some thick red liquid in his goblet? I like this match a lot, and I think the reason why is it felt like I'm watching school. Owen is absolutely perfect in this match, and Edge is just a sponge learning from him. He's not perfect. The match isn't exactly perfect, but there's a lot it's an education going on in the ring of Edge just learning from Owen on how to work and how to be better. And I just enjoyed seeing that process for this match. So Kevin, you bring up the rookie of the year aspect. This pay-per-view takes place in September. So when is this award show? Did did they do like the slammies around SummerSlam or something? They weren't doing slammies right now though, right? Like they did the ones when Vince McMahon danced on uh, MTV or USA Network or whatever. They had a many years long gap of it. Maybe they did something in the magazine and then they randomly brought it back as like an extra on USA Network or as just an episode of Raw whenever they felt like doing it really. Um, Two-time Slammy Award winning Owen Hart is disappointed in the fact you don't remember the slammies and Sable and her bathing suit. I'm saying I don't remember a rookie of the year. Oh, there it is. There it is. And it's weird because, you know, Edge had only debuted, I think, the previous month at SummerSlam. Maybe he had a singles match, the Raw or two before that SummerSlam. So I I think Edge only had been in like in ring action within the last two months. And that was it. So how to be the rookie of the year is kind of kind of maybe it was a way to explain the kind of reaction he was getting. Maybe, you know, like, oh, this is the rookie of the year from, you know, from what we've heard of, yada, 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 that sort of thing. Um, It it is interesting. And one of the reasons why I love watching these kind of in your house shows is you do see the debuts of Hall of Famers, like to see, you know, uh, some of the early rock, see, you know, Triple H, see Edge, see how they grow into who they become. It's. It's awesome to watch, and I, I think that's why a lot of people enjoy the NXT product. Um, now they're on TV, so it's not as much, but it used to be you would watch NXT every Wednesday just on the network, and they would throw uh, people with very little experience and watch them grow into their characters and just get better and better and better, and you know, you get invested that way. I, I think that's one of the reasons Sasha Banks became so so popular in NXT is just because of watching from where she was to who she is now. It's it's night and day. It's like watching the the Bellas, you know, seeing how far they've blossomed over the years from just two girls doing twin magic to now two girls doing twin magic in real life. Make it stop. 
or one so, match in i'm already over it so afterwards we get uh doc Hendricks uh with sable and they're talking superstar line so following up the superstar line we get the match of too much which is brian christopher and uh scott taylor aka scotty too hottie taking on al snow with head versus two cold scorpio um so one question i have for you guys because this is really one of the first times we've seen al snow um in this variation of his character and who he's become is could al snow and head get over in any other time or was it an attitude only character at this point because obviously they're playing on the words what does everyone want hey you know what i mean like the the callback and stuff like that obviously in a pg era you couldn't you you couldn't do that you couldn't get that over but i think the character play you could absolutely uh some kind of you know you know crazy schizophrenic individual um you know having conversations with the mannequin head how to improve uh, their in-ring style, how to improve their promo kind of deal, like conversations that he would actually have with a, you know, they did lots of promos of in ECW, uh, just trying to help develop the character and just him having conversations with, with the mannequin. Uh, absolutely entertaining, entertaining in this era could be entertaining now if, if, if done properly. I mean, how much different is it than George Lane will steal in the mind now? Yeah. He's carrying something around and talking to it. And that that was absolutely a PG, you know, cartoony era. Is there anyone around now that is has that kind of gimmick idea that you can think of off the top of your head? Because I can't think of anyone that is carrying like an inanimate object right now. And Dexter Loomis. Yeah, I could see that. Absolutely. That's a good call. It'd be very easy switch. What about Randy Orton? Because he hears voices in his head. <laughs> yeah. Randy Orton carrying around like a little beanie baby, talking to it. It's a viper, of course. <sighs> it's my brother for you. So uh, well, anyways, why don't you go down and uh, break down this match, educator? So we get a very early incarnation of this particular tag team of too much that eventually became too cool. Uh, we, you know, we're familiar with Scott Taylor mostly being a part of the original light heavyweight title tournament. And now he is, you know, tagging up with Brian Christopher and they're trying to do Kind of like this cocky, arrogant team uh, going against two ECW alumni, Al Snow and Scorpio. Uh, In regards to the match, unfortunately, when the chair was brought into the ring, you just saw the unfortunate shenanigans that were going to play out. And it didn't do any favors to Al Snow or Scorpio. So we see Al Snow set up a chair in the ring while the ref apparently was not paying attention so that he could use it as a launching pad to thrust himself across the ring into uh, Brian Christopher and do a drop kick. And when you notice Snow, Al Snow do this, there is a slight slip with the chair and you see the chair bend uh, a small amount as he jumps off the chair and does the drop kick. For whatever reason, Scorpio decides to follow with the exact same bump. And when he, a heavier individual, jumps off the chair, we see such a goofy botch with the chair breaking. He somehow still kind of slips in a motion of a drop kick and ends up drop kicking uh, Scott Taylor into uh, Brian Christopher to try to salvage it. But unfortunately, there was just not going to be much recovery after that. We see Scorpio do a splash off the top rope onto Scott Taylor. 
and um, we eventually have a broken up two count. Al Snow does a moonsault from the guardrail onto Brian Christopher onto the floor outside of the ring. Al Snow eventually tags back into the match and hits Brian Christopher, uh, Scott Taylor, and accidentally, just in the swing of things, uh, score his partner Scorpio with the, uh, the mannequin head while the ref apparently missed all three of these swings from Al Snow. We see two missed, uh, very missed or poorly timed pinfall saves from both teams. We see Brian Christopher uh, come in off of a late two count to do a Tennessee jam leg drop off the top rope in order to save a Scott, Scott Taylor pinfall attempt. And then eventually we see Scorpio do some kind of off-camera dive over the top rope into the ring in order to save Al Snow from getting pinned, both of which just very poorly timed, unfortunately, with the referee doing an extremely long two count and then turning up and looking to see at the competitor falling towards them rather than finish the three count. We see the finish of the match with Al Snow hitting his snowplow driver, kind of like a side suplex driver, onto Scott Taylor for the pin, and we get a 1-2-3 victory for the makeshift team of Al Snow and Scorpio. Uh, post-match, there's kind of like a little bit of a weird conversation between Snow and Scorpio. You know, Scorpio questioning why Al Snow swung and hit him with the head. But uh, the face team wins, and uh, well, we got our second match in the books. You know, I thought overall, good wrestling match. There's some very good wrestling in here. All the guys involved are talented. Uh, the chair stuff got to be crazy. The ref distractions got to be crazy. The referee was confused over who was the legal man for a while here, too. And I got wondering, like, I think everyone in the match was taking themselves too seriously. I think making this a comedy match, not comedy to the point of like a Santino Morella, but a comedy match that's like, wow, there's some really good wrestling here, too. Like a lot of Chikara matches or like uh, when we were watching ECW and also collectively one day realized, oh, my God, Stevie Richards is actually a good wrestler. Something like that, like. Be more crazy, be a little more ridiculous, because you already got the ref distractions, who's legal, the stuff with Al Snow and Scorpio. You already got all these spots in here. Just take it that step further, but also show that you're all talented and deserve to be in there. My question to you guys is, obviously they're trying to do stuff with Too Cold Scorpio. And it seems like they've been searching and searching, trying to redefine them and and come up with a gimmick for him you know whatever you want to say how come not team him with too much because of the two no no honestly i mean why why did rikishi you know what i mean like i mean you have these two nerdy guys and then you have two cold who's cooler than cool all right how about this put scorpio with the nation and team up him and delo as a tag team absolutely i could see that i'm actually not thinking about it. i'm surprised uh what at some point that they did not decide to use scorpio and as a part of the nation high flying black tag team one a veteran and one a rookie they are wearing winning multiple titles without a doubt too low <laughs> too low there it is <laughs> is that would that be their name would have to be at this point. It is now. Yeah. So, anyways, we follow that up with Michael Cole interviewing uh, the Undertaker and Kane, kind of setting up the main event. Of course, um, anything of of note from this little uh, bump? 
Undertaker apparently impressing that him and his brother have an understanding and an agreement, so to speak, and that their end goal is total annihilation of Steve Austin. Oh, I, I bet this agreement will continue through the main event. And then we get marvelous Mark Miro with a house show favorite Jacqueline taking on Draws. Um, so uh, a couple questions came up during this match. Um, number one is educator. Are you familiar with the Nintendo sports brand <laughs> that was Canada owned? I was looking at that logo as it popped up on the screen and it's weird because this is 98, 1998. So this is Nintendo 64 era. But if you look at that logo, that logo screams GameCube era, just the blockiness to it. Yeah, so. because of the 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 cubiness of the N for the N64. Right. I'm curious because they said in Canada it is sponsored by Nintendo Sports. Um, if this was like there, because obviously Nintendo never had third party support from like EA. No. If no. if this was their response to like EA, because I remember growing up, they used to have like Ken Griffey Jr. baseball and stuff like that, which was right, right. a Nintendo game. But really, I can't remember anything for the N64 era. That no, had nothing that. of substantial note that jumps out. I mean, they only had 296 licensed games anyway. So yeah, Were the, off the top of your head, <laughs> were they already doing competitive gaming? Was Nintendo Sports like video gamers competing against each other? I really, I, it's, I'm drawing a blank on it completely. I mean, I can't That's an that, interesting but... thing, Kevin, just because of the, the 64, one of the big things was they had the four player hookups. So, right. Like golden eye tournaments would, you know, certainly be a big thing or our Mario Kart, you know, tourneys yeah. and all that stuff. So anyways, uh, to get to the match, what was the ceiling for draws? Um, you know, we've seen them. They seem to be pretty high on him at this point. Um, me personally, I didn't like his look, um, very grungy. Um, what I mean by that is probably would have worked better in like the new generation era than the attitude era with that look. But where do you think at this point in his career, where was he going or where do you think they had him penciled in for? I I mean, they, in, in a few months we see him take a more prominent role in LOD 2000 and he's doing the full gear, full face paint. Um, and with shoulder pads and so on. Uh, it's unfortunate with the accident that we know happens, and it's about a year from now, I believe, that Draws ends up having his accident, the injury at the hands of D'Lo. Um, so there's so much more that honestly could have come uh, from that. His, his tag with Albert at the time, as the tattooed, pierced, you know, team you know there's so much more that could have happened with that unfortunately i guess we'll just we'll never know due to that the nature of the injury and the fact that he was forced to retire yeah i mean maybe him and albert could have had a tag run um update the headbangers gimmick in a way i guess but i don't see him i don't see a way to do his gimmick and get him into a singles title contention what do you guys think of just his um because he had a physical presence to him, but like his in-ring work, because he was fairly green. I mean, oh yeah, I mean he he was still probably within his rookie year. He had a stint in ECW. Uh, notes for the match that I had, I just first thing I noticed is that, or that I wrote down, is that 
it seemed like his timing was off with throwing his clotheslines, his footwork, and so on, and like where he would bump off of, you know, hitting uh, Marrow's body, and then where his body would land in relation to Marrow's. You know, there was still it, it was a learning process, and he he wasn't there yet. Um, a few notes I have for the match beyond that. Uh, at one point, we see Marrow doing a somersault plancha over the top rope, doing his running move uh, onto the floor, onto draws. We see Draws hitting a very delayed scoop power slam onto Marrow as Marrow was rebounding off of being Irish whipped into the ropes. We see Jackie's involvement in the match. She climbs up to the top rope while the ref is dealing uh, or his back is turned. And he, we see uh, as the ref is handling Mark Marrow, Jackie climbs to the top rope. She takes one of her heels off and ends up doing a, a dive onto Draws, spiking that heel into his head. And the frightening part of the match, and I don't know if you guys noticed or not, when Mark Marrow hit his finisher, and I forgot that he had renamed the uh, the Shooting Star Press as the Marvelocity, um, he body slammed draws way too close to the corner. So when he ended up doing the backflip portion and then his body dropped down, his bottom, his feet hit the bottom ropes. And absolutely could have been tangled up and, in, you know, could have been substantially injured. Luckily, he was uh, not. But he ended up hitting the uh, the shooting star press, Marvelocity, for the 1-2-3 victory. You know, we're talking about how green draws was at the time. Uh, there is a moment where he moves very quickly just in time to catch Marrow. And I got to give him credit for that. The, he had the speed for it, the power for it, and the timing of the wrestling know-how. For a rookie, like, I was shocked he caught him, and thankfully he did. Um, it's funny with Draz's gimmick at the time how he was the heavily tattooed guy, and you look at his tattoos now, and that's nothing. That's absolutely nothing. Randy Orton gets that many tattoos in a weekend because he's bored. I gotta say, as someone who has pointed it out since the beginning of this series... How happy I was to see the WWF Women's Championship. It's back. Jacqueline's the champion. And boy, what a beautiful belt that was that she carried after winning the title on Raw six days earlier. Oh, wait, wait. We have we have a new champion, WWF, and they didn't even bring the belt down to the ring. I'm sure this women's division will go great. You know what I was happy to see, though, guys? Jacqueline. Well, besides that, was the greatest foreign object in wrestling history the loaded high heel was brought into this match loved every second of it big fan of heel work spiked him right in the head (laughs) i just want to point out quickly here before we get to the next segment there have been three matches in 36 minutes yeah these these you know these two pay-per-views are a lot of matches and not a lot of uh, time devoted to them this is peak russo in and out, get everybody paid. Speaking of getting paid, uh, <laughs> we have a commercial for DX's Down Here t-shirt. Um, down where? Down here. Down t-shirt. here. It's it's funny that we, we, we talk about this when we talk about the shilling of the merchandise, which I've always loved, and we haven't really seen that. I'm very excited for the shilling of merchandise during Halloween Havoc 
Uh, of course, that'll be the new series we're covering starting in um, October. But I- I'm curious as to uh, you guys. Do you remember the down here T-shirt? Uh, obviously, this wasn't their most famous one with the two words, um, of course, being the most uh, famous DX shirt. But uh, another was this another Attitude Era gem for you guys, do you think? This was a playoff of Scott Hall and WCW and doing his mic work and, you know, down here. It, it also, I mean, the shirt may have not been their most popular shirt, but that saying was, I remember doing this at, at college, you know, hanging out with friends and all, it, you know, someone's girlfriend would be like, oh, I'll meet you down there. And we'd all go down where down, you know, just being stupid kids. But I remember the repeating of the saying more so than I remember the shirt. I find it hard to believe, Kevin, you were ever a stupid kid. I know. I'm so clean cut and fit and got all my all my stuff together now. Um, so following that up, we get another Vader classic. Ooh. It is Vader taking on Bradshaw in a Falls Count Anywhere match. Um, before we get that, though, we do have Michael Cole talking with Bradshaw. Um, what, did, what did you guys think of this Falls Count Anywhere classic? <laughs> this is uh it, it's it's weird in that we see JBL or John Bradshaw Layfield is Justin Hawk Bradshaw still at the time or I guess Justice Bradshaw um he he's kind of doing a character change in that he's got a clean cleaner cut haircut he's shaved the mustache he, he looks like what we were so used to as the JBL character from the 2000s um this is Vader's last pay-per-view match in the WWF and uh, it is a very, very stiff brawl back and forth between the two. Part of me wonders the fact that the brawl for all competition and the way that all worked out um, and JBL was attempted to be put in his place in that. And he actually advanced much farther uh, than, than I believe anyone expected that he was uh, realistically going to. I'm wondering if Vader was encouraged because there were a couple of very stiff shots in this match. I wonder if Vader was encouraged by management in the back to try to put JBL in his place. I mean, I got to wonder if there's dueling management and Bradshaw's putting Vader in his place too on his way out. That fittest, not the fat, it's survival, the fittest, not the fattest line. You know, what was it last pay-per-view or two ago with Vader's I'm a, I'm a big piece of poo line. Like they're burying each other really. All right. So we got both competitors in the ring and the start off of the match is, just very, very stiff clotheslines, very stiff knee shots, elbows thrown back and forth by Bradshaw and Vader to each other. At one point, we see Vader running the ropes, and he hits that vertical splash onto Bradshaw to knock him down. We see Bradshaw clobbering Vader with the ring bell on the floor, uh, again, lending into this whole anything goes, no holds barred. Apparently, it was a falls count anywhere match. Later in the match, we see pinfall attempts on the floor. We see uh, Vader uh, slams uh, the set of ring steps down around our, on Bradshaw's shoulders. Bradshaw ends up countering a headlock into basically like a Saito. Uh, Masa Saito side suplex, and that was actually quite impressive watching Bradshaw lift up Vader and do that twisting side suplex variant. We see Vader hit a very, very heavy uh, splash off the second rope onto Bradshaw. It looked like he just dropped his full weight completely down across Bradshaw's body. 
And then he immediately gets up and climbs to the second rope and ends up doing his Vader bomb splash where he kicks his feet out and falls backwards. Uh, And the combination of the two splashes still only got a two count from the referee, Tim White. Eventually, there's continued brawling back and forth, both inside and outside of the ring. Pinfall attempts both inside and outside of the ring. We see eventually Bradshaw hit a clothesline from hell. Attempts a pinfall attempt in the ring only for a two. He ends up getting up, running the ropes again, and hits a second clothesline from hell. And then instead of doing the pinfall attempt, he does this reverse hanging neck breaker onto Vader. And the announcer sold it like it was such a crazy looking move or just weird to see Bradshaw doing it. But this hanging neck breaker onto Vader drops Vader down. We get the one three count and Bradshaw victorious over Vader. If anything, I think this match is an insult to Vader and a we want you to leave. Bradshaw cuts the promo, clean cut Bradshaw now, even though he grows the hair and mustache out again as part of the APA. But he comes in all clean cut like he's going to be like the next Boy Scout superhero good guy. Clearly he's not, though, because that's just not Bradshaw. Horrible entrance music. Some of the worst entrance music I have heard in this. And... That counts them having to edit over real songs that they don't have the rights to anymore and use them like bad WWE songs. Slams Vader with ease. Like you would have thought it would have taken a little bit of effort, but he acts like Vader's nothing. Kicks out of the Vader bomb. Clothesline from hell, like you were saying, a quote modified neck breaker. No, he screwed it up. This is what it is. It was modified nothing. Bradshaw wins. And it's clear, it's like, all right, Vader, we're done with you. We're going to put what we were going to put behind you, behind this guy, who no one likes. But we see more in a guy that no one likes than we see in you anymore. Now, side note, I noticed after this, a couple years ago, everything was the new generation of WWF. If anything, this is a new generation night. Let's use all these, let's use undercard, let's use veterans to get these new guys over, get them more experience, so we can build them up sooner and have you know, our secondary belts and our main eventers soon. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of fresh blood tonight. Uh, fresh, and, thick red liquid. And we haven't even gotten to the Gangrel match, so. So we follow that up with Kevin Kelly with Tom Pritchard and Jason Jeez. Sensation. Um, Jason Sensation, guys, uh, how long was he around in the WWF for, for this little portion of his uh, career? Uh, I know he was used, obviously, for the Monday Night Raw skit with the Nation of Domination imitating Owen Hart. And I know there were a few other skits that were on Monday nights. I don't remember him beyond 1998, unless either of you remember a specific skit he was a part of. I feel like he got a job doing something behind the scenes for a little while. But then he, he was gone, forgotten about, had some drama, was it last year or two years ago? And now he's forgotten again. Yeah, I think what you're bringing up, the drama you're bringing up, Kevin, is how he said that he snuck a gun into Monday Night Raw and was going to kill himself on live television. Yeah, yeah, little things like that. Uh, Another question I had for you guys, uh, just born from this segment, is Tom Pritchard. Uh, You know, we talked about how they're just kind of using him um, because they needed to fill, because he was mostly a trainer, right? Yep. Um, So, Kevin question to you is who would be the two most influential superstars he has ever trained rock for sure uh no incorrect 
Did he train the Bellas? <laughs> yes. Nikki and Brie Bella on their Wikipedia, it says that Tom Pritchard was one of. I was talking about real Hollywood stars, not The Rock. No, no. Did you see? Sorry, a tangent to a tangent here. Sign, cosign, all of that. Did you see that someone said, uh, can you think of, because they were talking about David Arquette, and they said, can you think of an actor that could be a wrestler? And someone's like, I don't know, there's this guy, Dwayne Johnson. He looks like he has the build for a wrestler and was dead serious. I No, I thought that was a joke. No. Oh, I cried a little. Yeah, so of course, you know, Nikki and Brie, the Bellas, uh, the best wrestlers ever. You know, uh, you know what's funny? We, we did bring up uh, Rookie of the Year there. Did you know that Nikki was the number one ranked wrestler in PWI's Female 50 in 2015? Is it crazy to think about? I think that made, was that the comeback year? I don't know. Or maybe that was when Brie had the neck brace on all year. You know what the saddest thing, Kevin, about the whole pandemic no, is? is we didn't we didn't get to celebrate Nikki and Brie going into the hall. Thank goodness. I mean, you know. That would have been a hall of fame. Millions of people infected with COVID. Hundreds of thousands have died. But really, Nikki and Brie not getting to the Hall of Fame is the real shame of 2020. And, and just think, whenever they're able to have the Hall of Fame ceremony, they both have to talk to it. It will last double the time of a usual induction. It's going to be like... this. How great would have been they would have had their baby bumps? Now they can bring up the babies with them. Oh. Stop it. Third generation superstar. Balance. Oh my gosh. Let Birdie. it all. Birdie winning the title. Yeah, third. Because <laughs> of Johnny Ace. It's <laughs> technically the, the grandfather. Oh my. <laughs> I just, I got him. I want to go to bed right now. (laughs) Their kids could be the dynamic two nets to the grandfather. They come to the ring on skateboards. (laughs) Actually, one of them, one of them will have to like run to the ring carrying the board because they'll never learn how to skateboard. (laughs) That that was Johnny Ace. Oh, I thought you just meant because he had the medalist. No, 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 no. That was the whole deal. Yeah, Shane Douglas could skateboard, but Johnny Ace couldn't. That's why he always ran to the ring and carried the board. (laughs) All right, so so match number five on the night is one half of two low. Deal of Brown taking on Gangrel. Um, And we get a little Mark Henry interference. What what did you guys think of this match? Um... I'm I'm bummed about the match because with the new face of Gangrel, uh, I really wish they would have put him over in the match to try to really push him as, you know, a, a viable character. And they're trying to get the whole idea over is that you'll return, you'll be returning home soon as they're planting seeds for his eventual uh, development of what we will know as the Brood and getting Edge to turn to his side kind of deal. Um, it was a fun match back and forth between the two. I don't remember Gangrel ever being so thin. Um, yeah. Because he got much, much heavier in his career. But, you know, this debut, I mean, he had just debuted a few few months back or a few weeks back prior to this. And originally he was used to wear a black leather jacket during his first debuts to the ring. And then, then he just went with the, the white shirt and with the goblet of the uh, red fluid. I just I don't remember David Heath ever being this thin, um, but good back and forth match between the two. 
Um, interesting because D'Lo had just lost the European title the previous Monday on Raw to X-Pac, and he's still wearing his uh, European champion uh, type gear, ring gear, his ring tights. I love how Howard Finkel mentioned that he is uh, now relocated back to Chicago, Illinois, no longer in, in Europe. So that was a little fun pop for me. Um, I just something about the the referee in this match really frustrated me with Jimmy Corderas. How he did not see the the mule kick or the reverse donkey kick that uh, D'Lo did to Gangrel as a low blow into the corner and not call for the bell, I'm not I'm not sure. Knowing the the injury that Draws ended up suffering a year later uh, from D'Lo in that accident with the running power bomb, I kind of cringed watching D'Lo do the the running power bomb to Gangrel, but the crowd had a huge pop when that running sit out power bomb ended up hitting and hitting hard. We see a weird looking botch as Gangrel tries to climb up to the top corner. On to to uh, do a DDT onto D'Lo, and he kind of like slipped off, but the announcers kind of played it off that he, you know, D'Lo was countering a maneuver, even though it was pretty obvious that Gangrel had slipped off the rope or fallen uh, backwards off of D'Lo. Gangrel botches uh, basically what was supposed to be like a stun gun, like flapjack, onto D'Lo, and end up dropping D'Lo like too far away from the ropes and like his body didn't even really hit the bottom rope whatsoever. So that could have been unfortunately an injury to D'Lo. Luckily that didn't, you know, happen. We see Mark Henry coming down to ringside and the crowd is kind of like, you know, all peering their attention to the entryway as Mark Henry comes to ringside. Eventually Mark Henry inserts himself in the match as the ref is kind of have his back turned. Uh, Gangrel was thrown into the ropes. Mark Henry yanks down on the bottom rope, causing Gangrel to fall over onto the floor. And then Mark Henry ends up picking up Gangrel and kind of avalanche splashes him into the post. Mark Henry then ends up throwing uh, D'Lo, uh, Gangrel into the ring for D'Lo. D'Lo picks up Gangrel for the sky high power bomb, and we get the one, two, three victory. Post match, we end up seeing Gangrel suddenly recover. And he gets a mouthful of his viscous liquid and spits it in uh, Gangrel's, or Gangrel spits it into uh, Mark Henry's face, causing Henry to fall out of the ring. And then Gangrel turns his sights onto D'Lo and ends up hitting his impaler DDT onto D'Lo Brown. I wish we had the full Monday Night Raw set and we had the full entrance for Gangrel through the Ring of Fire as opposed to the smoky entrance in the, from the floor. Um, I just, you know, for being a new competitor and this is his pay-per-view debut, I wish they would have done more with David Heath and actually gave him the win over D'Lo Brown. We could see D'Lo is, you know, not recovered from his loss from the European Championship and he's distracted and blah, blah, blah. I think they should have given Gangrel the win here. Uh, yeah, and I, I love the Gangrel gimmick. I absolutely love it. One of the coolest gimmicks ever in WWF. One of the coolest entrance musics ever in WWF. But he is off in this match. He is just so off. Uh, there's a, what is a, a something with the ropes, back body drop, something, I don't know, but narrowly misses D'Lo's head with it, like super close for it. He's just, he's a step off, you know, chemistry with D'Lo. I don't know what it is. D'Lo's great in this though 
I mean, add D'Lo to our list of guys we got newfound respect for. D'Lo is just fantastic in this match. I was beyond impressed with him calling it, keeping Gangrel as good as he can for the match. You know, it, it is what it is. It's a shame that it couldn't have been better because D'Lo's great. Gangrel, we love the gimmick. But now I'm like, all right, was he just maybe not that good in the ring but had a cool look? I don't know. I'll have to, you know, look more into it with uh, the nostalgia goggles here, too. And uh, side note for the next one, there have now been five matches in one hour. <laughs> that is ridiculous. You you bring up D'Lo and how we've been impressed with him and how he's really maximizing his minutes. Did the injury to draws a, a year later play into his career where they just buried him? And because you really can't push him and then he because he would always have that stigma connected to him. Correct. Unfortunately. Um, and from what I hear, it was just, it was an accident. It was poor timing on both gentlemen's part, you know, with D'Lo dropping down earlier with draws, not really tucking his body and doing the sit up portion uh, of that move set of that power bomb spot up high enough. And unfortunately the, you know, the accident was the accident, you know, there's never been any, footage shown just a few pictures that were posted on websites of ring uh ring crew and medics working on on draws's body but with this particular well well-known incident there was just not much you could really do with delo he was always going to be saddled with this not that he was you know injury prone or would cause injuries coming I mean, to my knowledge this is the only substantial thing that D'Lo has been ever connected to in terms of injury to another wrestler. It's just, unfortunately, it's a such a big, well-known thing that has happened. What are you going to do with that? Make this yeah. guy world champion, you know? He, he, they tried to do Intercontinental, you know, right before this had happened, and, and it didn't really get over that well anyway. And, uh, yeah, I mean, what could you do? Uh, I mean, we've seen wrestlers that are sloppy. We've seen wrestlers purposely stiff each other. That's not what happened with D'Lo at all. Straight up accident. It's a big accident. It's a big mistake. But yeah, that's all that it was. It's a shame. It's also crazy to think in 1999 that the D'Lo draws accident would be the second biggest accident in the WWF ring that, that year. True. I never even thought that's the same year. Yeah. Yeah. Like four months apart, Owen and draws. Yeah, so we actually we get a a, a clip here, um, and I thought it was interesting a war zone clip where the commentary team of Shane McMahon and Jim Cornette. Um, do you remember when they were doing commentary for what must have been the last hour of Raw? Was this just one of those Russo things? Let's let's change it up. I remember always hearing that they had the ten to eleven hour of Raw or the 9 to 10 hour be the war zone so that way two shows would show up in the top um you know in the in the mm-hmm. top 10 of the cable ratings for the week so it looked even more impressive that they had all these all these people but do you remember the kind of the the mindset behind having the separate commentary team come out had this not even been brought up during the uh, pay-per-view, I it was something completely glossed over. I had only ever remembered Shane being involved with Sunday Night Heat commentary, not actually being on Monday Night Raw, Warzone. I think part of it is Monday Night War was still going on, so we were still flipping channels. So a lot of the announcing wasn't as memorable as, oh, something cool is happening in the ring. Yeah, and then we, we follow that up. We get to our 
uh, triangle cage match uh, for the number one contendership for the world title. Um, but before that, we do get quick little interviews. We get Michael Cole interviewing Shamrock, Doc, Hendri- Doc Hendricks interviewing The Rock, and The Rock gets huge cheers. And then we get Kevin Kelly interviewing Mankind with probably the best political reference we have heard on the show so far. Oh, by far. One of his best promos. One of the best promos we've heard on In Your House, too. This is fantastic. Yeah, so what did you guys think of the building to this triangle cage match? I had, at this point, I had forgotten that by this time, Shamrock had finally turned heel. Uh, I remember associating him being heel with uh, his blue ring gear. And uh, we see Shamrock come out after this interview, come out to ringside and for the cage match in his blue ring gear. Yeah, I think it's it, funny interviews with mankind. Nothing mirrors the people's elbow for sheer stupidity. Um, and then we end up seeing this people's elbow or double people's elbow during the match. Uh, just just fun stuff with the rock getting cheered. And we're starting to get this face turn, even though he's still considered the leader of the nation of domination. In fact, during his entrance, he still has his nation of domination music. He still has the nation of domination Titan Tron playing in the background. Um, yeah, fun setup for the match itself. Unfortunately, the match, eh, not exactly too super memorable. Uh, yeah, monotone promo by Shamrock. Rock gets in there, and then Mankind steals it. And I don't know if this is when they started figuring out we really got to put Mankind and Rock together more. Yeah, there during the match there is glimpses of the the Rock and Sock connection, and also the Shamrock and Sock connection. So. <laughs> Glad that they went in one way and not the other. Um, but why don't you uh, break down the match for us, Educator? Sure. Um, one of the things I noticed, and I don't know if you guys picked up on it, is that anytime that uh, Mick Foley was beeled into the ropes, he seemed to be moving very awkwardly, very slowly, mm-hmm. very gingerly. Um, you know, we're a few months uh, post the infamous Hell in the Cell mega bumps that he had being thrown off the cage, being thrown through the ceiling to the canvas and so on. Um, it, it seems like he desperately just needs some time off to, you know, care for his body and, uh, certainly wasn't having the opportunity to do this. We see mid cage match, um, the rock sets up both, uh, mankind and shamrock for the double uh, for the people's elbow and it ends up lining them up side by side so that when he runs the ropes back and forth, he drops in between them and hits a, uh, uh, the double elbow drop on both guys and they just got an amazing huge crowd pop from those in the in attendance we see a rock bottom on mankind uh and a pinfall attempt only for shamrock to essentially stop that pinfall attempt we see ken shamrock essentially set up and do an ankle lock on the rock only for then mankind to interrupt that submission attempt mankind and the rock start fighting each other at the top of the cage as mankind is trying to escape the cage and the rock ends up following him and they end up uh, essentially crotching each other on the top of the cage and they're fighting back and forth. Eventually Foley knocks the rock off the top of the cage and rather than, you know, climb down the cage since he's already at the top, apparently he has visions of grandeur and Morocco Uh, and Superfly from 82, 83, and he climbs to the top of the cage and goes for a big diving elbow. Even though he had done this spot, you know, a year and a half prior 
or about a year ago at SummerSlam 97 under Triple H. Wanted to do it again, apparently. And if you notice just where uh, Rock's body is in the ring versus where Foley leapt out to, he would have completely missed uh, the Rock anyway. We end up seeing Shamrock uh, trying to escape the cage. And as the referee opens the door, the referee sit or stands up from a, a chair that he is now sitting in at ringside. And as Shamrock is attempting to escape the cage head first, he ends up grabbing that steel chair and gets dragged back into the ring. So now that Shamrock has the uh, steel chair, he attempts to hit Mick Foley with the chair shot, but Foley ends up ducking. And then he ends up hitting uh, Foley hits the double arm DDT on Ken Shamrock. And then Foley ends up grabbing the chair and then cracking Shamrock in the head with the chair itself. And as Foley decides to escape the cage um, and he's climbing over the top, the rock is uh, slowly recovering from a maneuver that was done to him. And he essentially rolls over and pins Shamrock as Foley is probably about three quarters of the way down the uh, cage itself, ready to drop to the floor and huge, huge crowd pop for the rock winning the match. Uh, with the pinfall that from the chair shot from Foley. Uh, Rock is crazy over here. It was just amazing to hear it, especially, you know, as we've been going through the In Your House series when people could not care less about him. I'm wondering how bad Foley was hurt and not letting on because other than the big spot of the match, that's his one and only big spot in the match. He really takes it easy the rest of the match. I'm wondering if he's hurt so bad. He's like, I'm going to just be here. I'll get ready for my spot, but that's about it. But then he brings out more of the character and the comedy and, you know, we'll team up and we'll do this and the goofiness, which then that led to more chemistry with the rock. The two of them teamed up, the two of them feuding the probably his world title reign. The, this is your life with the rock, which I believe is still the highest rated segment of raw ever. So him being hurt and bringing out this other part of his personality led him to be even bigger and more successful. I I honestly like this match a lot. I think it was my favorite match of the night. I, I just thought all of them did very well. It was a, a slow build, but a fun match when it got going. And hey, let's look back to earlier in the In Your House series for the first three-way match on the card with Farouk versus Javier Vega versus Crush. And this is just light years better than that. They, they figured out how to work a three-way match. Yeah. Um, so, so obviously you guys bring up the, the people's elbow. And watching the people's elbow now is very weird to me. Not because of the move, um, you know, the ridiculous of it. I mean, that's why people love it. But because the rock doesn't face the hard camera. True. So yeah. his back is to the hard camera. Do you think a move like that could work in, in today's WWE because of always face that camera? Because he's playing to the crowd the entire time. Playing to the crowd the entire time. And the few times that he does come back um, in the last few years to to do either a one-off or a special appearance, and he ends up still doing the uh, the move. The crowd just absolutely pops huge for it. Um, just what would be a modern version of the people's elbow? You know, a goofy maneuver, but, you know, doesn't really seem to 
you know, it, it's just so over the top ridiculous, but you know, it's the finish, you know, maybe John Cena's sixth move of doom that he debuted at one of the Saudi Arabia shows, the big weird punch or whatever. I mean, I don't know. What else do you guys got? Otis and the Caterpillar. Yeah, is is Otis. But that's, to me, more of the Scotty Too Hotty Worm. Yeah, but you do it to hard camera side. It's completely goofy move. No, yeah. I mean, it, it completely is. But there really isn't anything now that, to me, sticks out. Orange Cassidy shin kicks. Yeah, I was going to say the shin kicks from Orange Cassidy. And then the big wind up for the super kick that, you know, it's still a kick to the knee. But the only difference between that is you you don't sell that. Right. Like True. it's a devastating True. move. I mean, that's just more of a, oh, a mind games thing. Judas effect. Slow. It's a ridiculous move. <laughs> it's a spinning elbow. I mean, that's used in MMA all the time. <laughs> Are you going to say Chris Jericho spins with the speed of anyone in MMA? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, <laughs> <laughs> the, the I like your mocking laugh. Why are you anti Chris Jericho, Kevin? I, I'm I'm anti wrestlers that wrestle under the influence, allegedly. I like Jericho. He's great. Then we better not sit and watch a Sandman match ever again. <laughs> yeah, all we've been doing is watching uh, uh, Hawk matches. <laughs> 20 years from now, when the house show reviews All Elite Wrestling, year one. We'll talk about how we got those on unri- I can use that unrivaled bit all over again. <laughs> <laughs> it's a callback. Um, I mean, Kevin, we watched No Holds Barred, which was written under <laughs> cocaine. It was it was written by Hogan, Vince, and Coke. <laughs> Should I say I don't support wrestlers that promote conspiracy theories? Shoot, AJ Styles. Um, should I say? <laughs> if you look hard enough, you'll hate everyone in the world. So after the match, we actually get um, Shamrock goes nuts and snaps. Um, of course, he had been doing this. Was this the first time he did this, or had he been doing it on previous Raws? Do you know, Matt? Um, I don't remember uh, vividly. I, I think this was like the turning point of him now going into the crazy psycho character. That he would eventually portray. Which I thought he was awesome at, personally. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to snap like that. Right. Um, and then this is where we get the first Judgment Day uh, pay-per-view in three weeks, is what they say. So, um, hence why we're doing the Twin Magic episode, uh, so we can, you know, cover both of them, one right after another. And then we get the Dustin Reynolds versus val venus video package and we follow that up with dustin taking on val of course um terry is in val's corner um so what did you guys think of this love the uh the outfit that terry had on certainly uh left very little to the imagination there um crazy how into this storyline that terry reynolds was uh, her mannerisms with Val Venus, the post-match celebration and making out with Val Venus. You know, I, I, at this point, I believe Dustin and Terry were still an actual married couple, but she just seemed to be having way too much fun. It makes me wonder if this would have been, and I know that we had talked about this in previous episodes, you know, Goldust had went crazy post the Brian Pillman angle and ended up being with Luna it makes me wonder if they were just rehashing the angle now and now Terry is is the heel character with Val Venus and and now Dustin 
But again, the the commentaries playing off, well, it was Dustin that left and Dustin that let, you know took off on her and blah, blah, blah. It seems like they're just rehashing out the angle from last year that they never were able to play out to you know full capacity. Jeez, that's got me wondering. Imagine Pillman not as the porn star part of Val Venus, but as the I'm going to steal your girl part. And Pillman doing all these videos and promos, Yamaguchi-san, ter- like anyone, jeez, that could have been great. He would have pulled that off, too. Has there been ever been like a, obviously there's been like sleazy characters, but like a sleazy, to I'm going to take level? your girl character? Yeah. Rick Rude? But was he taking other guys, female valets? Like, wouldn't six, it be something wife? whereas whereas he he beats you and then he like collects every valet? Like an ultimate dragon of women. <laughs> yeah, or of me of wrestling buddies. <laughs> like how the fiend, you know, you, you change when the fiend is. You change into a member of his harem. So towards the start of the match, we see Dustin Reynolds actually hit a pretty square looking powerbomb onto Val Venus. Eventually, Dustin hits a pretty solid DDT onto Val Venus for a two count. Dustin climbs up to the top rope. Uh, for a uh, maneuver, and Val ends up catching him uh, for a superplex. But rather than Val Venus superplexing Dustin into the ring, he picks up Dustin and then ends up dropping him face first to the floor. And Dustin cracks his face on the apron. It was kind of a, a, a awkward looking spot, but it certainly uh, was impactful as the crowd popped pretty pretty hard for it. Back in the ring, we have a recovery. And uh, we see Dustin hitting a bulldog running off of the ropes onto Val Venus, and he goes for the pin, and the referee counts one, two, and when his hand should have went down for a three count, we see a very loud or hear a very loud air horn uh, from a fan in the crowd, and Val Venus at no point rolled up his shoulder, and the referee Jack Doan just stopped counting. I, I don't know if it was due to the distraction of the air horn, but then he had to play it off like Val Venus lifted up his shoulder. So it was a complete referee botch missed time uh, on his end as Dustin, you know, had the pinfall. But certainly that wasn't meant to be the finish of the match. Eventually, Val Venus recovers. We see Val power slamming Dustin after Dustin is running off of the ropes. And then Val Venus climbs to the top rope, hits his money spa, money shot splash, superfly variation splash off the top rope for the one, two, three. So, serious question here. Who's the heel? Like, really, who's supposed to be the heel here? I would say Dustin in the fact that, you know, he left his wife, he left Terry, even though he's doing the preacher, pray for me gimmick kind of deal. I, I think Dustin is the heel here. Yeah, because, I mean, like, Val's being cheered. You know, the crowd loves Val, but technically he stole someone's wife and is having an affair. Dustin's coming out there like, we had issues. I've come to Jesus. I'm trying to resolve it. I'm trying to be a better person. If you could all pray with me. Like, technically, he should be the face for it, too. It's just, it it was very weird. And, uh, like, I kind of want to watch more of this angle. I got really into it. Um, Is this the first time we've seen Terry since Pillman died? Since the angle, like, the, it's definitely the first time we've seen her on pay-per-view. I just don't know if it's the first time, you know, for anything else there. 
Uh, we debated Vale on the previous episode. I've decided with this, he's a good hand, an average wrestler. You can put him in there and he can make someone else look good, but there's nothing exciting or interesting or unique to his wrestling skills. However, character and personality-wise, blown out of the water with it. Just being as over-the-top as he can be with a Vale Venus character and making the most of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then we, we move on to our co-main event of the night. It is Jeff really? Jarrett and Southern Justice taking on D Generation X, which is X Pac and the New Age Outlaws. Uh, and I have one note for this match, and it just says it was an easy night for the Road Dog. Very easy night for the Road Dog. We see uh, towards the start of the match, Jeff Jarrett's in the ring working with X Pac, and what the commentary calls as Jeff Jarrett going for a, uh, a head scissors. Onto X Pac. It really, he's leaping up in the air as if he's going to be doing a Frankensteiner on X Pac. And X Pac ends up countering with doing a sit out power bomb, and that got a really, really good crowd pop. Road Dog eventually tags into the match, and he tries to do his little juke and jive jab combo onto Mark Canterbury, who had tagged in by this point, only for Mark Canterbury to just basically clobber and level Road Dog with a pretty stiff looking clothesline. Eventually, Road Dog tags back out, and X-Pac is back in, and Mark Canterbury catches X-Pac, attempting to do a spinning wheel roundhouse kick, and he catches him and drops him into a powerbomb. We see Jeff Jarrett tagging in and putting a sleeper onto X-Pac to really get the crowd, uh, crowd sympathy for the New Age Outlaws and the DX team and for the get the crowd all pumped up for the eventual comeback. Eventually, we see Billy Gunn getting the hot tag into the match, and he strikes down all three opponents in this match. We see Billy Gunn press slamming Jeff Jarrett in the ring while the schmoz melee is going on. In the background, we see X-Pac hitting a Bronco Buster onto Jeff Jarrett. X-Pac tries to do his X-Factor like sit-out face buster onto Mark Canterbury, only for Canterbury to just do a very stiff clothesline to knock X-Pac down. Jeff Jarrett, uh, ringside, eventually walks around the ring, picks up his guitar that says, don't piss me off, and he ends up clobbering X-Pac uh, top-down 12-6 to six, uh, with the guitar on the floor, and X-Pac is, is really selling a potential eye injury and commentary talks about, you know, a possible splinter from the chair shot explosion. Right immediate, almost immediately after the chair shot that had happened on the floor in the ring, we see Billy Gunn end up doing his what Jim Ross is still calling the rocker dropper that eventually becomes known as the famouser. Billy Gunn hits that famouser onto Dennis Knight, drops Dennis Knight down and gets the one, two, three victory. You know, you're right saying Road Dog has the night off. Billy Gunn actually wrestled a handicap match on Heat. So he, he's got a busy night here, too. Um, I think this is Jared's most iconic appearance starting here. The haircut, the guitar, the don't piss me off, uh, the short trunks. Not short, but like shorts. I don't know why, but I really never clicked that Southern Justice decided to call themselves by their real names. When they said Mark and Barry Dennis Knight, I'm like, no, it's, Finney, it's Henry and Phineas. Like, I don't know why I, ne I never thought that they changed their names. X-Pac and Jarrett have amazing chemistry in this match. They are so good together. I loved watching these two go at it. Like, honestly, get rid of everyone else in the match and just have those two go at it. 
absolutely phenomenal. I, I enjoyed it so much. Um, that guitar shot might be, well, not worse, but it's up there with some of the chair shots we've seen. It was absolutely disgusting to hear that. It, it, you know, like, take Jarrett and X-Pac, good match. The other guys kind of didn't really matter for it a lot. But it, was, it wasn't bad. Was in bad cold main event as you called it. Um, where was Triple H? He was injured on Heat. Triple H and Mark Henry were supposed to have a match. Someone, air quote, someone attacks Triple H. Uh, China attacks Mark Henry in the backstage area. Mark Henry then um, is dragged out by Vince, and he says, "Well, you don't have a match anymore." but we got to test out this cage for tonight. So we're going to put you and Austin into a cage tonight on heat to test out the cage. And that's when Austin does that thing of him being looking like one of the uh, production crew and gets McMahon at the cage. A very iconic moment for Sunday night heat there. It was pretty cool. So going back to your question about triple H, triple H actually had a legit knee injury, a knee issue. Um, He had it worked on earlier in the year which is why he missed the Royal Rumble 98. If you remember, he kind of came out and did, was on crutches and did a crutches spot in, in the match and attacked Owen Hart. He re-injured, I think, that same knee in the ladder match with The Rock at SummerSlam uh, during that Intercontinental title match. And he ended up having to uh, drop the title or get stripped of the title. And they ended up doing that one-night tournament on Raw in a few weeks that uh, Shamrock ended up winning. So then we get the video package leading into our main event. Of course, the video package breaks down Austin, Undertaker, Kane, and Vince. And then we get the Kane versus the Undertaker versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, so what did you guys think of this uh, this match? <laughs> it's really a two-part series. Uh, I mean, the purpose of the this match, get the belt off of Austin, and then we ended up because of how the belt was removed from Austin, how he was defeated, so to speak. We end up setting up the main event for the next pay per view, and then because the next pay per view, the way how that ended, ended up being a schmaz, uh, we end up setting the up the deadly game tournament for the new championship, uh, new champion for Survivor Series. Uh, fun match, interesting angles with the fact that you know Kane cannot defeat Undertaker, Undertaker cannot defeat Kane. I love King on commentary saying that, you know, how Austin has the advantage because he has two two potential competitors that he could beat, whereas Undertaker and Kane can only defeat one. I, I just love the heel commentary from Lawler in this match. Oh, Lawler was fantastic with his logic there. No, Austin has double the chance of winning because he can pin two people. I was like, you know, sometimes he says stuff that's just absolutely ridiculous and stupid and heel work and makes no sense. That one, I'm like, I got to give this to you. Got to give that one to you. That was brilliant logic. It's it's really like it's two matches, though. You got a lot of, you know, just kind of stalling and moving around and, you know, I'll hit you a little bit and all. And then once Undertaker and Kane start stopping each other for the pinfall, then it comes into like the second half of the match. Um, you know, the previous match that you mentioned, Road Dog has night off. Kane's got the night off here. Kane does jack in this match. Interesting how both men are actually billed by Howard Finkel as weighing the same amount, 328 pounds. We were see, they really? Yeah, they were. Good both times. of them were, were announced at 328 pounds. So, 
So this we have a triple threat match for the World Wrestling Federation Championship. You know, Austin can, uh, uh, you know, could defeat either of his opponents, but Taker and Kane were supposedly forbidden from being able to pin each other. So Austin ends up attacking the Undertaker uh, from behind during Undertaker's entrance, and Undertaker is sporting a new version or a newer updated version of his entrance theme. It's the theme that would be synonymous when he was doing his Ministry of Darkness gimmick here, so he's already using this theme a little early. Interesting that there's no Paul Bearer at all in this uh, involvement with Undertaker and Kane. I'm wondering if he was out with health-related issues or they just decided to pull him out storyline-wise before the end of, they end up turning you know, essentially Kane as a member of the corporation and, and Undertaker starts developing his, his, corpor- or his Ministry of Darkness faction. But anyway, back to the match. We see um, Austin attacking Undertaker with a chair at, during Undertaker's entrance. Kane tries to essentially make a save only to get hit with the steel chair from Austin as well. Eventually, back in the ring, Kane ends up slamming Austin, and then Austin sidesteps Kane, trying to do a clothesline off of the top rope as Kane dives across the ring and essentially misses. Austin Irish whips Undertaker uh, into the steps on the floor to try to derail him and get him off to the side. Austin ends up catching tw- uh, or crotching Kane twice, yanking both of his legs um, in the corner uh, ring post as Austin is standing on the floor. Austin ends up getting back into the ring and hits the Stone Cold Stunner on Kane, and the referee goes for the count only for Undertaker to essentially make the save onto Austin by preventing him from actually getting that pinfall victory. Austin sends Undertaker into the ropes for Taker to duck a clothesline attempt and then to essentially rebound back off of the ropes for his flying clothesline, and he only gets a two-count from the referee. Austin eventually rebounds and does the Fez press on to Taker to get a huge pop from the crowd. We see Undertaker brawling with uh, Austin on the floor, and then Kane follows up, and then Undertaker supposedly accidentally hits Kane with the fist on the floor, and then we end up seeing the first standoff, you know, stare down confrontation between both Undertaker and Kane as to, you know, what in the world is going on. So eventually, Austin and Kane get back on the same page. They lift Austin up and drop him face first on the Spanish announce table, almost like a stun gun like maneuver. And just after this happens, we end up seeing the crowd turning towards. Uh, the entrance, looking towards the entrance and checking out. And there's a commotion going on. And then the cameras catch up and we see Patterson, Briscoe and Sergeant Slaughter are now standing in the entrance way and essentially watching the match probably from about 40 or so feet away. Just, you know, getting a bird's eye view of the action going on in the ring. Austin ends up brawling uh, as they're working around. Uh, on the floor after he was dropped, he ends up brawling towards the entrance with Undertaker towards uh, the entryway where Patterson, Briscoe, and Slaughter are. And he ends up knocking down Gerald Briscoe only for Sergeant Slaughter to then essentially attack and start stomping on uh, on Steve Austin in, in the uh, while they're working on the floor itself. Back in the ring... So after uh, there is the interference from Sergeant Slaughter stopping on 
Steve Austin, the Undertaker, uh, ends up almost getting pile driven by Steve Austin as Steve Austin had made a recovery after attacking uh, Briscoe, and he ends up trying to give uh, Undertaker a pile driver, and instead Undertaker gives him a back body drop onto the floor, and the uh, announced team ends up talking about how the floor is covered in like a plywood. Uh, because it's actually covering the ice in the arena itself for the hockey uh, hockey arena programs that they offer there. Um, Austin ends up eventually recovering and ends up picking up a steel chair and swings that chair from the floor and ends up hitting Kane. Um, and as a result, he tries for a ring or, or a pinfall attempt, but Taker ends up breaking up that pinfall attempt that Austin was going to do on Kane. Taker ends up grabbing the chair from Austin and hits Steve Austin with the chair. As Taker attempts to uh, pin Steve Austin, Kane ends up breaking up that pinfall, creating again more dissension between the Brothers of Destruction. We see uh, Kane hitting this weird-looking top rope sledgehammer-like forearm uh, as Austin is dangling uh, waist side over the top rope, causing Austin to fall back into the ring. Kane ends up trying for a pinfall attempt onto uh, Steve Austin, but again, Taker breaks up the pinfall, again, creating more dissension between the two brothers. Austin and Kane end up then start double teaming the Undertaker and causing Undertaker to get knocked down to the floor. And then Austin turns his sights onto Kane, hits a uh, side Russian leg sweep onto Kane, and gets a two count from the referee. Undertaker eventually recovers and gets back into the ring and now seems to want to work with his brother Kane and they work together to team up against Kane uh, or team up against Austin and we have a short-lived partnership as the two again eventually turn on each other and start brawling back and forth in the ring Uh, and they then try to do pinfall attempts on Austin and they continue to interrupt each other's pinfall accounts onto Steve Austin. Eventually, the Brothers of Destruction again get back onto the same page. They throw Austin into the ropes, and they both grab Austin by the throat and do a double choke slam, and then both lay on their backsides and cover a part of Steve Austin's body, and they each hook a leg itself, and the referee ends up counting a three-fall, and we end up getting a new World Wrestling Federation champion, but then no one is announced because both men end up pinning Steve Austin after that choke slam. We see Vince McMahon make an appearance near the entranceway. He's yelling for one of his uh, cronies to go get that championship title. And he now is in possession of Steve Austin's Smoking Skull Championship title and ends up leaving the building, waiting for Austin to confront him. And as Austin eventually makes his way to the back, we see Vince McMahon flipping off Austin saying, see, you lost it, it's all mine. He gets into his limo and speeds away. I have a lot of opinions here. Um, One, Austin's biggest mission here is to go against Vince against Vince McMahon, against the corporation, trying to keep him down. He ignores his opponents and attacks the Stooges. He, you know, goes against Undertaker and Kane. He doesn't wrestle smart. Like, putting some logic into it, he should have seen, huh, if Undertaker pins me, Kane's stopping him. If Kane pins me, Undertaker's stopping him. What if I just allowed myself to keep getting two counts, 
because then the two of them are going to beat each other up. And eventually, one of them's going to go down and I can take the pin. Let me ignore the Stooges and focus on my opponents here. Like, it's, it's not smart wrestling. It's just full of, like, rage and anger. Um, the match is also kind of like the murder hornets this year. Stuff starts happening, and then it stops. These guys start doing something, and then they stop, and it goes away. And we start having something interesting over here, and then it stops, and it goes away. But the whole reason, other than Kane apparently just deciding he's going to clock out early for the day, uh, strongly disappointed Kane's performance in this match. Um, and I, I'm going to assume you two will get this reference, but I apologize if you don't. This whole match is like a week of a soap opera. Monday doesn't matter. Tuesday doesn't matter. Wednesday doesn't matter. Thursday doesn't matter. Friday is the end of the match and Austin chasing after Vince and Vince leaving in the car. That's all that matters here. The rest of the match doesn't. And you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to get through the weekend. So Monday I can see what happens next in my stories. In the soap opera that is WWF, especially the Attitude Era, the only thing that matters here is like the last five minutes. And four of it's Vince and Austin. Yeah, I mean, this is what everything was leading up to was just for Vince to be out of that, um, you know, out of the limo, holding the belt up, screaming at Austin. You can look, but you can't touch. I mean, that was pretty much how they ended this pay-per-view. Confirming his guarantee, too. Why don't you stay through? And on the other side of these commercial breaks, we will uh, be greeted by Nikki. Uh, And just remember... Where will we go now that Vince is saying to Austin, you can look, but you can't touch. <laughs> the belt. You didn't get it the first time I said I it, Kevin. It. I did it. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Are you man enough to step inside? Do you suck blood? Do you wear a size medium when it comes to t-shirts? Do you jump off high things to impress daddy? If you're man enough, then step inside to the Shane McMahon Vampire Underground. It's a high concept club for underground fighting. Some people say it's the love child of WrestleMania in Transylvania. Either way, Shane O'Mac Daddy is in charge. We may have girls dancing one week and then the next week they're fighting because anything goes in the underground. I want to suck your blood. But also be rated PG for TV. Hey girl, yeah, you, I'm talking to you. This is Maddie Treats from the House Show Podcast, and uh, 
maybe you've you've been like me, and you're you're feeling a little a little lonely at night. Well, I just want to point out that I I know what to prescribe for you. I can give you a DDP bag, or I can give you a Goldberg if that's your speed. Who's next? How about a Macho King? Oh yeah! Or a red and black Sting? He didn't have a catchphrase. I got both versions of Hogan. 24 inch Python. One night with the warrior you want to do it again He's a bad person How about an L.O.D. Oh, what a rush And how about a Jake the Snake Roberts He'll bring party favors So if you're feeling lonely just curl up Curl up Pick your favorite wrestling buddy, girl, that's what's up. Our truth reference. Cause you are a little like me. So much alike. And at night it can get a little lonely. So lonely. Yeah, girl. This has been Maddie Treats. You're my wrestling buddy. But, I guess you can call me Dr. Treats. You're my wrestling buddy. Because, once you start getting those buddies. You're my wrestling buddy. It's the medicine that you need. Peace out. You're my wrestling buddy. All right, guys, so welcome back to our Nikki Bella portion of the Twin Magic episode. Um, Kevin, how does it feel to be in the Nikki Bella portion? I mean, there's a lot of matches on here that I actually like this evening, so I figure we're calling it that because it's a more stacked card. That is true. Um, so why don't we go right ahead and get into it? It is Judgment Day in your house. It takes place October 18th, 1998 in Rosemont, Illinois at the Rosemont Horizon. Over 18,000 are there. And you know, we are in Chicago area, so you know the crowd is going to be jacked up. And how packed did this crowd look? Just over the top for Chicago was great. It honestly looked like they oversold the building. Yeah, that is one thing, too, I'm noticing, especially in the Attitude Era, with when you have Austin on top, and Austin is your your man. I mean, he's selling tickets left and right, is the sets. We always talk about the the sets. When we started with the In Your House, we had the old house set, and now we've got the kind of industrial 
Attitude Era set. Uh, they're very pared down, and there's seats all above them to the side. You can't do that now when you have these raw sets and you have the SmackDown sets and you have the the huge platforms really for television. Um, it's just a it really is a different era when you're when you're watching this. Yeah, the entrances where the uh, wrestlers are walking in directly on the floor through the curtain. Uh, just a different perspective being directly floor level with the fans as opposed to raised up on the stage. Um, definite hits and misses with the set, especially the main event and the uh, how the set was in, included with the pyro and so on. Well, I thought it was really, really cool. Uh, wish the uh, the Gangrel entrance with Christian would have been the full-blown ring of fire and rising up through the center, though. Yeah, I mean, there's logic to a smaller set means you got more seats, but there's also logic to, geez, a big, pretty set just looks pretty on camera. Yeah, I think with the advent of the HD cameras, when WWE went HD, the high def sets look definitely better than the kind of these these grungy looking. Um, I, I always like to use the word industrial set because of the steel and, and different things like that. Um, but it's just kind of fascinating to see that the WWF was so popular. You have people over the top of the entrance. It's always, always fun. Uh, we do get a video recap of everything going on. I personally liked this recap video much, much better than the previous one from breakdown. Uh, what, what did you guys think? Anything of note from this video? Uh, I thought it was a great intro to get the fans all pumped up, fired up. Uh, the idea of Kane versus the undertaker again, this is now going to be the third time we are seeing this, uh, in a pay-per-view, uh, this year they had the WrestleMania, they had their Inferno match, and now we're getting this one, uh, unique kind of, uh, stipulation with Austin now being the referee and, and McMahon, you know, guaranteeing that if Austin doesn't raise the hand of the winner, he's going to fire Austin on the spot. So we'll see if he follows through tonight. I mean, really like a great. I, I didn't time how long it was, but this would be a great commercial playing, you know, during every cable channel, TV guide channel, whatever, in the weeks leading up to the show. Because the non-fans can see that and go, wait, what the hell's happening tonight? What are they doing? I got to see this. Yeah, so we get the uh, the night started off with our first match is Al Snow with Head versus Marvelous Mark Merrow with Jacqueline. Now, Kevin, Jackie has the She's belt. got the title. Are you excited? I was. I was so happy. Um, And then for some reason, Jeff Jarrett comes out, tries to get in the match, tries to lobby for the match. Yeah. So what, so what is going on here with, with Jeff Jarrett? Is this the start of a feud with Al Snow? Is that what we're seeing here? It appears to be Jeff Jarrett's kind of uh, reinvented his character as a result of his hair loss match uh, against X-Pac at SummerSlam. And it appears now he's no longer with Southern justice. So we are looking in, a, I guess, a somewhat of a new direction with Jeff Jarrett, and this is going to, I guess, be his first kind of singles feud in his rebranding of himself. Yeah, so why don't we go right into the match? All right, at the start of the match, we see Marrow uh, getting in some offense on Al Snow and knocking Snow down to the canvas, and for some weird reason, uh, Mark Marrow decides to tease that he is going to punt head who has uh, been in the corner, and he's kind of almost sneaking up on the mannequin head, almost expecting that it's going to move if he were to attack the mannequin head. Uh, I'm not sure what exactly he was trying to accomplish here, but Al Snow ends up recovering and starts getting into offense. So it was very good-looking moonsault that Al Snow ended up hitting on Mark Marrow, who was laying down in the ring, 
as uh, Mero uh, was going to potentially have a pinfall attempt against him. Jackie ends up getting on the apron to distract Al Snow to stop that potential pin, uh, pinfall count from occurring. Eventually, Mero recovers, and Mark Mero hits a kick into the gut to Al Snow. Then he bounces off the rope and does uh, what we commonly refer to as that million-dollar knee lift, slapping the knee into the gut and knocking down uh, Al Snow. Mero climbs to the top rope and ends up doing his twisting uh, marrow salt where he does a 180 on the top turnbuckle and then flips back to do a, basically a landing standing moonsault onto Al Snow. We see Al Snow eventually recover and he hits a sit out powerbomb like spine buster onto Mark Marrow. And that actually got a pretty good crowd pop for that. Al Snow climbs to the top rope again for a second moonsault attempt. And Jackie gets involved in the match right in front of the referee and ends up dragging Marrow out of the way as Al Snow had jumped into the air. Why that wasn't considered uh, an interference or a disqualification uh, from referee Tim White, I'm not too sure. Marrow ends up climbing to the top rope after he body slams uh, Al Snow in the middle of the ring. He climbs to the top rope for his Marvelocity shooting star press. And you could tell that Marrow realized how ridiculously far away that Al Snow was positioned. He ended up, you know, attempting the shooting star press anyway. He would have landed very, very short, but Al Snow still rolled out of the way to avoid any contact from Mark Marrow. Uh, a little bit back and forth between Marrow and Al Snow. Eventually, Marrow tries to pick up Al Snow for the TKO, uh, and when he swings Snow around, Al Snow was able to basically fall out of the move and scoop up Mark Marrow to hit his snowplow kind of uh, driver for the finish to a huge crowd pop for the one, two, three victory. So I noticed it a lot on this show, but we'll start here. And it's one of the great things about the attitude era. And that is that everyone was over. Like when Al Snow wins, it's kind of shocking. Marrow's former intercontinental champion. He's had big angles. He's got Jackie with him. Al Snow just showed up like, on paper, on the his, their history in WWF over the last year, and Al Snow just showing up after getting repackaged, Mero should win. Everything says Mero should win. But Al Snow wins here, but I mean, like, everyone's over. Mero had, you know, I mean, heel, but people cared about him, cared about Jackie, cared about Al Snow a lot. Like, everyone's over, and it means anything can happen, and anyone can be pinned and not lose their heat. It was, like, such a great a great thing about the Attitude Era. It, it's a good match. Like, it's a surprisingly good match. I think I liked nearly everything on this card tonight. It's a good opener. One question I have is, uh, on this card, we don't see Sable at all. What was she doing? Do you guys know? I mean, this is just three weeks away. She was on the Superstar line. Are they not sure where to go? with her now or are they just waiting for the next thing um i'm wondering and i don't remember exactly what was the storyline i mean obviously there was still the jackie versus sable storyline going on if you notice jacqueline coming to the ring she had the title on but her hair had a bunch of blonde strands in it i can't remember that there was some kind of hair cutting angle that had happened and maybe she chopped off some of sable's hair uh, but maybe they had taken Sable off TV for a bit just to, you know, sell the whole angle of the haircutting. 
I'm pretty sure. Kind of like uh, what they recently did with Mandy. You know, the the hair gets cut off. She's gone for a little bit and then debuts her new look. Uh, so then we get Austin, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, showing up. He's going to go to the dressing room. But no, he's just a special guest referee. So he has to dress in a closet with Mike Chioda and he throws Chioda out. I kind of felt bad for Kyoto there. And it was like a broom closet, janitor's closet that he was getting dressed in. Poor Kyoto's like leaning over a chair, tying up a shoe, and Austin just grabs him, chucks him right out the door. It was funny. Um, so we follow that up with match number two, which is the Disciples of Apocalypse with Paul Ellering taking on LOD 2000 with Draws. Uh, what do you guys think of the six-man tag? And I know Educator's a big fan of the six-man tag, so does this rank up there with the international incident match? <laughs> Definitely not going to rank up there with the international incident match. Um, was an okay fan of this particular match. A couple of things that stand out for me, uh, especially seeing Paul Ellering coming to the ring on the motorcycle. His arms were just, he was jacked. Now, Paul Ellering was a pretty accomplished wrestler in the late 70s and the early 80s. He ended up getting some type of injury that prevented him from being able to continue wrestling. He did a few one-offs here and there with uh, Hawk and Animal in Crockett NWA in the mid-'80s, but um, I, I, I forgot how like pretty jacked Ellering was. Second thing that stood out for me is Draws. I think he looked amazing in the LOD gear and the LOD wrestling uh, equipment, the shoulder pads and so on. He looked the tattoos. It looks like he fit very well in with the group itself. In fact, I mean, he was obviously, I feel, in the best shape of the three guys there. It looked very weird. He looked so much younger compared to the other two members of LOD of Hawk and Animal. And the combination of Animal with his hair being grown out, like grown out to the point where like he probably needed to comb it or brush it out of the shower as well as with animal wearing just like the the biker shorts he just looked so much shorter than i remember animal normally ever being hawk unfortunately he looked awful he he looked out of shape he i mean they were explaining that mentioning in the storylines that there was you know an addiction to painkillers and then they're even alluding to the fact that you know Draws is here as a member of the team. Draws is the alternate. JR says Draws is the alternate, but then King pipes in and says, well, no, actually it's Animal and Draws with Hawk as the alternate. So they're they're trying to start to create this wedge between the members of the Legion of Doom. They're now called the Legion of Doom. They're no longer LOD 2000 at this point. And uh, yeah, there's some seeds planted for some inner turmoil at the end of the match. Like, Draws works real well here, and I feel like it could have worked if given more of a chance, certainly better than Heidenreich in there, you know, teaming up with Animal, but he's about the same height, his look matches, it makes sense. I know you guys aren't that familiar with it, but we have listeners that are. Um, DC Comics does legacy characters. A character gets older, and they'll introduce a new version, a new Green Lantern, a new Flash, whatever. But it takes this concept that works and that people like and gives it onto a new generation of it to move the story forward. LOD is a gimmick that you could have given that to Draz and had him bring that, 
gimmick forward into another generation and continue on the legacy. For many reasons, it doesn't happen. But, you know, I don't know. I, 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 again, was very impressed with them. I got thinking, since we announced that we're doing Halloween Havoc next, I have not looked up matches ahead of time. I really hope there's a Road Warriors match somewhere in Halloween Havoc because I just want to see them better. I want to see them as good as they were, not this era of them. Well, lucky for you, Kevin, they are on the cover of the 1989 Halloween Havoc poster. So I'm going to guess that they are on that card. Oh, you should see if you can order that poster on eBay once you can order on eBay again. Yeah. You got to get that card taken care of, man. Let's not talk about that. It's taken care of. It's taken care of. Uh, Another Paul Ellering thing. uh, I watched Heat for both Breakdown and Judgment Day. Um Paul Ellering does not get one of those Titan bikes on the previous pay-per-view. DOA makes him walk to the ring as they ride their bikes out. So I was very happy when I saw him got, get a bike on this match. Maybe you have to be an official match participant to get a bank, uh, bike. Crush wasn't using his. so or They had a leftover one from Crush. Um, so uh, did you want to break down the match, Matt, or do you not have? Sure, absolutely. Uh, just a few notes that I have here. We've got Animal and Hawk. They essentially start out the match. Lots of offense on a member of DOA, and uh, they tag in and out. And then eventually Draws tags in, and commentary JR talks about Draws being you know, younger, inexperienced. Draws ends up hitting the ropes too close to the DOA corner and a member of DOA kind of clotheslines him in the back of the head as a distraction. And then as a result, we end up getting the three men continuously tagging in and out, working on draws for the majority of the match. Paul Ellering's involvement, very, very limited. He's essentially wearing street clothes, a T-shirt and like a pair of pants and boots, not actually in traditional like wrestling gear. Not that DOA ever had traditional wrestling gear. Uh, but very, very limited in match, even though his arms were completely jacked and looked like he could probably fit in. He had very, very limited involvement in the physical match. So lots of uh, DOA members tagging in and out, continuously working on draws. Eventually, draws is able to get away. Hawk ends up making the hot tag and he gets in the ring. He starts clearing house, knocks down all three members of DOA. And there's a six-man brawl in the ring. A few men are eventually thrown out to the floor. Eventually, Animal sets up a member of DOA for the uh, devastation device. Hawk climbs up to the top rope, does the clothesline. It is the fallback clothesline, kind of like the electric chair drop, not the, you know, flip the guy off and cause him to do a backflip version. So Hawk does the successful clothesline. And in the process of Hawk taking time to get up and roll over for the pin, Draws sneaks into the ring and actually covers the member of the DOA. And for whatever reason, the ref decides to go ahead and count Draws as the legal man as the pin. And Draws pins uh, the member of DOA winning the match as Animal celebrates, not necessarily realizing that it was Draws that got the pin as opposed to Hawk. And we start to see the seeds being planted of Hawk's frustration with draws his actions you know any good story you find yourself agreeing with the villain to a certain point for me for draws i'm like he's excited he's into this match he wants to get the pinfall it's for the team what does it matter who made the pinfall the win goes to the entire team if we won a podcast award what's it matter who gets a phone call first saying we won an award point is we won it as a team Uh, i should get that call though 
<laughs> Jeez. Throw that out there. All right. So, but sweet Maddie Hawk here is like, hey, I've done all the work. Therefore, I should be the one getting the pin and getting my hand raised first. So it, it, it could have been a real good story because you can see both sides and you could agree with them. Like sweet Maddie Hawk. <laughs> I am like a badass too. Come on with spikes. Badass this guy. All right. So we follow that up with a light heavyweight title match where we have Christian with Gangrel taking on Takamishinoku with Yamaguchi son. Um, what'd you get? What'd you guys think of this match? This was really good. This is such an underrated match. Uh, this is like Christian's official in ring debut. I'm not sure how exactly he qualified. I believe, I believe it's his in ring debut. I don't remember him being on raw the weeks or Sunday night heat weeks leading up. We did see him uh, kind of act as a distraction for the previous month's pay-per-view breakdown uh, in the edge match versus Owen Hart. Uh, love the entrance. I thought Christian looks awesome with the Gothic gear on the glasses, basically just being like a, a follower of gang the long, long blonde hair. I think he just looked great. His shirt, though, was so ridiculously huge, so ridiculously baggy. Uh, I think probably was due to the fact that at this point in his career, age-wise, he just wasn't you know, that really jacked, that really physically built. He was probably extremely lean being a younger uh, wrestler for the WWF at the time. So certainly trying to cover up for that. Amazing entrance. Uh, I love the match itself. Uh, it did wonders uh, for Christian to win a championship on his debut. Uh, you know, Taka Michinoku had the championship for 10 months. They talked about that during on commentary. I, I thought his, his work in the match was very crisp, very, very solid as well. It's really good. There's something missing. And I think, like you're saying, it's Christian's WWF in-ring debut. If these guys could have been a little more familiar with each other, I think this match could have been like match of the night for sure. Maybe even snuck into a top five discussion. Like do, let them wrestle in the house show loop right beforehand, get real familiar with each other, plan out spots, you know, figure stuff out. But there just seemed to be a couple moments of like, okay, I'm not quite sure what we're doing next here. Cause I don't know your style yet. And you don't know mine yet. So we're not, you know, there is a lot of feeling out process. I would have liked to have seen like their third match, their fourth or fifth, something like that. But for what it was, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised. This was a lot of fun. And it's it, it's what the light heavyweight division could have been, too. So was this your, your match of the night, then? I don't know. Because it's not mine. It's no... But, it's, but it is good. It's, I, good, it's a real it's good. Not, it's a very entertaining match. I agree with what you're saying, Kevin, about how you wish that they had more, you know, uh, like their third or fourth TV match. I think there is a match on here later in the card that mimics that idea where, oh, this is like the second time we're seeing this match and it's so much better than the first time. Yeah, and second time seeing the same finish, too. One thing, too, I, I wanted to add is Taka Mishinoku, his dive to the outside where he jumps on the top rope. How come we haven't seen any other wrestlers really do that the way he did it? I'm just wondering if there's anyone comfortable enough that can do that standing vertical leap besides Shelton Benjamin, who is then willing to also then from that rope dive off the top rope onto the floor. 
I mean, one of uh, one of Lucha House Party can flip around on the like walk the ropes and change his position. I can't remember which one right now, pretty well. But that's still, I mean, we know the ring change, like you know, the mat did the ropes change? You know, were they in the process of changing in this era? You know, just Taco wear different boots that someone else doesn't wear that may have helped. I, you know, there's a lot of factors here. Yeah, I'm just curious that we've never really seen someone else do that. You know, one who probably could do it, too, is Montez Ford. He's, his ups are unbelievable. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. But it's just that momentum of running. And then it's It just looks so good. It really right. does. So, okay. so uh, towards the beginning of the match, as what Treat said, uh, Christian gets knocked out of the ring. And Taka runs the ropes and does that uh, springboard plancha off the top rope across Christian on the floor. Pretty stiff landing onto Christian uh, as they uh, get the match going. Action back in the ring. Christian recovers and locks in a dragon sleeper to do his drop down reverse DDT under Taka Michinoku. Christian does what or sets up for what we today would refer to as the three amigos, which wasn't even a thing yet, where he ends up doing two standing vertical suplexes onto Taka Michinoku. And then his third suplex attempt, he ends up falling forward for a face first suplex drop. Christian pulls down the top rope to cause Taka to fly over the top rope on the floor as Taka is charging him uh, after a relay off of the ropes. Christian ends up following Taka to the floor by doing a springboard from the second rope and a high cross body over the corner, over the top rope and onto the floor. One of the more common moves we're familiar with Christian doing during his WWF WWE run. Uh, We see Christian going for a diving headbutt or what JR referred to as a splash, but it came off more as a diving headbutt off of the top rope back into the ring onto Taka Michinoku for Taka to essentially roll out of the way. And Christian ends up, you know, face planning or body splashing the canvas really, really hard. Uh, Christian's out back outside of the ring. Taka ends up hitting a springboard acai moonsault onto Christian, who is on the floor recovering. Taka hits a high cross body for Christian off the top rope back into the ring for Christian to end up rolling through it and trying to go for a pinfall, but he only gets a two count. Christian reverses an Irish whip attempt by Taka Mishinoku, turns it into a side Russian leg sweep, and for another pin attempt only gets a two count. Taka throws Christian in the corner and ends up setting up for a tornado DDT and is successful in hitting his tornado DDT. Then Taka starts to play to the crowd, signaling for the Michinoku driver. Even commentary is even making comment that Taka is kind of wasting some time playing off to the crowd. As Taka picks up Christian to do the Michinoku driver, Christian ends up grabbing onto one of Taka's legs and cradles through into an inside roll-up and ends up pinning uh, pinning Taka for the 1-2-3 for a huge crowd pop. And Christian wins his light heavyweight championship and is recognized as the second WWF light heavyweight championship of this particular incarnation of the title. You know what's weird is I always thought when, granted they were cool, but I thought Gangrel and then Christian coming on with him were supposed to be heels at the time. Uh, clearly Taka and Kai and Tai are, but I really thought they were supposed to be heels. I think it was just... Here we are where it's, I don't care, I'm going to cheer you because you're cool. 
And I don't think there was a cooler entrance in music than Gangrel at the time. So thus Christian gets cool by proxy. Yeah, definitely they have the cool factor. And then when they add Edge in too, um, and then Edge is, it, it, it's funny looking back at it too, because when you, you look at that group, you, when you look at the brood, and you 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 figure because Gangrel's the leader, he's going to be the guy. But even from the get go, though, to me, Edge being on his own, being a you know lurker out in the crowd and stuff like that, he just seems special, at least more special in my opinion than Gangrel and Christian at this point. Without a doubt, um, certainly, I love how the fact that they're playing off of the the brothers, so to speak, and they do have very very similar resemblances with the longer blonde hair. Their facial features at the time with the goatees certainly could pass off as being brothers themselves, even though, in fact, they were just really close childhood friends. Yeah, I see that where you would believe that the leader of the group is going to be the star. But in the end, I mean, all three of them certainly had different pathways in the wrestling industry. And uh, good to see that, you know, Edge was able to recover from that that neck injury that he had over time and was able to come back for a, a, you know, a final run after a supposed early retirement. Uh, just hopefully he can re, uh, you know, recover from his current injuries and eventually we'll see him back in the ring again. Now, Gangrel never even held a title in WWF, right? Like, I don't even think he had a hardcore title, Quick Rain. You know, like you're saying, he comes out as the leader and nothing. Where Edge and Christian are, I mean, geez, we'd be here all day just counting their title wins. Yeah, they really... Uh... And it's crazy to think, too, that Christian was the first person to get a title reign out of the brood. Like, that's a trivia question you would not assume. Yeah, because Edge has his quick IC house show loses the next night thing, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting times to to see the uh, the incarnation of the brood here. So. so after that, we get a Val Venus versus Gold Dust video. That's right. It's not Dustin Reynolds this time. It is Gold Dust. Uh, and that brings us to match number four, which is Val Venus with Terry taking on Goldust. And it's kind of funny, Kevin, because we've been talking about how Val Venus seems like the heel. And now he is the heel versus Goldust, who has always been a heel. But now Goldust is the face. What is, what is going on with this? And I know you said you watched Sunday Night Heat. And of course, Val Venus gets a present from Goldust. And what great foreshadowing that that present that he would give him would then come and be a factor in the uh in the finish of this match there's a lot of stuff during this era where we go what what in the hell are you thinking why why is the match ending like this why is this person running in but the storyline here and including that segment sunday night heat working into this match is great it is very impressive like whoever was in charge of this whole angle did a plus job yeah absolutely uh educator why don't you go ahead and break this down for us so a couple of things pre-match during the val venus entrance did either of you catch the monstrous sign that says val venus penetrates chicago yep it was right on right in front of the hard game it was crazy there were some some really great attitude era signs oh, during this one. it was all the same crew up, up yeah. front and it, and i because i kept watching them and they keep looking over to see if they're gonna like get away with the next sign that they have and the next sign's even worse i'm like oh my god i can't believe you got into the building with these and your front row it was uh well this crowd like we said they i mean they were hype i mean anytime they were on the big screen too they would be 
crotch chopping and, and flipping off the camera. I mean, that was the Attitude Era. It really was. Huge crowd pop for the Goldust entrance in this match. Yeah, absolutely. They're very much into practically every match on this card. In particular, this match, we start to see Val Venus towards the beginning of the match. He hits a crossbody dive from the top rope onto the floor when Goldust was sent out to the floor to recover from a flurry of offense from Val Venus. Goldust, back in the ring, uh, hits a belly-to-back slingshot suplex onto Val Venus where he says, essentially drops Val Venus's, like calves and knees onto the top rope and then flips right back in order to drop Val Venus on the canvas. Uh, Goldust essentially uh, charges the corner to Val as Val was in the in the corner turnbuckle and Val moves out of the way. Goldust is going in shoulder first to try to do a, a, a tackle. And as Val moves out of the way, Goldust's shoulder essentially rams into the corner post and the momentum causes uh, Goldust to fall to the floor. Val continues to work on Goldust's arm and shoulder that had hit the post back into the ring. Uh, we see a hammerlock body slam and then a short arm scissors by Val Venus onto Goldust to continue to weaken the arm and the shoulder that had hit in the post uh, at a previous move, a few moves back. We see Val hitting a Russian leg sweep and then a scoop power slam uh, from Goldust or onto Goldust as Goldust is rebounding from an Irish whip off of the ropes. We see Goldust essentially stopping Val Venus from being able to set up for the money shot. Val Venus climbed to the top rope. But Goldust was able to catch him in time and knock Valvinus down uh, onto the top turnbuckle. And then he climbs the ropes for a second rope superplex onto Valvinus. Goes for a pin, a uh, pin count on Val and only gets a two count. Goldust attempts to do an elbow drop off of the second rope. And he ends up doing a huge back bump and essentially missing uh, Valvinus as Valvinus rolled out of the way. We see Goldust and Valvinus go back and forth, essentially creating sleeper hold wear downs for eventually uh, both men to try to counteract each other's offensive efforts. Goldust eventually throws uh, Valvinus into the corner turnbuckle, and Goldust hits the side ropes next to that same turnbuckle and hits the uh, running bulldog, which had been one of his like secondary moves for a pinfall attempt. As Goldust attempts to go for a pinfall attempt, we see Terry get involved by climbing up on the apron to distract Goldust and stopping him from wanting to uh, try to pin Val Venus. As Val Venus begins to recover and Goldust's back is to Val Venus as he is then confronting Terry, Val Venus attempts to charge Goldust. Goldust moves out of the way, and there's a tease that there's going to be a collision between Val Venus and Terry, but... Val Venus is able to put on the brakes and, and stop that collision. So the referee now decides to get involved and stands between Val Venus and Terry to try to admonish Terry to get her to get off of the apron. So as the ref's back is turned, Val Venus turns around and Goldust essentially punts Val Venus right in the groin, the foreshadowing for the gold cup. And Val Venus drops down to the canvas and Goldust pins him for the 1-2-3 victory. Like night and day for the reaction to Dustin Reynolds versus Goldust between the two pay per views, and oh God, it's much better work from Vale. I I complained about a lot of his work previously, but he was very good here. 
but Goldust is fantastic in this match. So good. I, I, I mean, we're three weeks apart from the pay-per-views. I wonder if being Goldust allows him to do more in the ring. Like, he feels more free to do certain things as this character. Like, by putting on a mask, it frees him in a way. I don't know. Um, when, uh, when have you ever seen a match end in submission due to that arm lock that was applied in this match? Not an actual real submission. It's meant to be a wear down hold. I know, but he still did the hand drops, you know. I don't know. It's odd. Um, credit to Terry for this match, too. Like, she does great. Uh, Alexandra York, Marlena, you know, all this. Honestly, I think this angle is some of her best work that she ever did. Like, real enjoyable. I liked what both guys did here. The match was loads of fun. Very impressed so far. Um, minus DOA, this is like a real good night of wrestling. This, um, I mean, it's the Nikki Bella episode. So it's always a good night of wrestling when Nikki Bella is involved. <laughs> Educator editing his own crickets this week. Don't worry, I'll edit it. I'll edit it in laughter. I, I just want to point out. How many people in this card from 1998, 22 years ago, are not in the WWE Hall of Fame, but Nikki and Brie are about to be? Are you kidding? (laughs) Enough. (laughs) Let it go. So, well, we've seen LODs in the hall, right? Does Goldust in? He'll be in. Well, I don't know now because of AEW. No, he's not in. Um, I, the more and more we watch stuff, the more and more I want to put in the nation as a faction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a way they would too, because it's a way to get the rock involved. Yeah. Have rock in twice. And honestly, I think it's the only way D'Lo gets in. What do you mean rock in twice? He's not even in yet. now. He's not. Oh, I thought I just assumed they put him in by now. All right. Well, obviously he's going in at some point. Yeah, at some point he will. But. He probably, I would imagine. Well, with COVID, I mean, Hollywood would have Hollywood been the... Would have made a lot of sense, would yeah. Would have been the mania to do it, but... So we follow that matchup with Michael Cole giving us an update on Triple H, who was attacked by Shamrock. And then we have X-Pac interrupt Michael Cole. And uh, he says that he was challenging Shamrock to Raw the next night, but that D'Lo Brown was going to lose the European strap. And then we move on to match number five. Now, quite frankly, this is still the first hour of the show, right, Kevin? Yeah. But, I mean, gee, what a packed first hour. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, so match number five is X-Pac with China taking on D-Lo Brown. I honestly, I know you're, I believe you're speaking highly of this being the better match, the better TV match. I wasn't a fan of this match. I really wasn't. And the reason being is because the finish was the exact same finish from the first title change when X-Pac had won the European title on Raw with D'Lo supposedly going to the top for his version of the Frog Splash and X-Pac able to stand up and hit the X-Factor as he's coming crashing down. I just wish they would have done a different version of a different finish, maybe an unsuspecting roll-up or something um, I'm just was, was not a fan because of practically an identical finish 
that caused the exact same title change probably six, seven weeks prior. Now, I, I'll throw this out there just as a counter. Um, we've mentioned before the role that the fans play. With the fans being so crazy, so loud this night, and I believe they said it's their largest um, attendance since WrestleMania 13, that everything is getting a little bit more a little bit more to every match because of the crowd reacting. Like there's, I didn't think before starting this in your house series, that a match between X-Pac and D-Lo would have the crowd going nuts for a two count, but they did. Yeah. It just kind of goes to show you how over DX is at this point. Um, because yeah, I, this was a great match. This was my match of the night personally. Um, I like this one better than the the last one where, where Kevin, you know, you, on the fully loaded where you loved this match. This was the better of the two, in my opinion. One thing I question for you guys, cause we've, we've talked belts a lot. Do you guys ever remember the European title? Was it originally a dark green hunter green strap with a red interior? I, I don't remember it ever being dark green. No, because you you texted asking about it, and I was like, I don't even remember it now being that way. So I had to go back. I thought it was a Mandela effect for me. So I'm wondering if, because probably at this point, they likely had like multiple championship belts in case one gets lost, in case one gets damaged. Do you think that maybe this was a backup title that they had? Maybe this was the house show loop title that they ended up using on TV? I mean, it could have been. I, I think what happened was D'Lo picked up some leather from Milan, Italy. Because oh, he lives is. there now. Yeah, Uh-oh. and he just hey, had a custom had European championship. Okay. Uh, you know, custom European championship made up. So, Well, it's just like if we talk, we think about some of the other belts over the years. At one point, the big gold, which was the world heavyweight title. Remember when Alberto Del Rio had it and it had the red interior on the, uh, you know, on the backside of the main plates and all that stuff as well. And the black strap on the outside. So I'm just wondering if you, I just, I never remember when when the original title debuted and it was bulldog winning it. I mean, it was all black strap and then, yeah, it's just, it's, it's crazy. So yeah, I'm not sure. All right. So at the start of the match, we see D Brown starting to work on Xbox left arm and shoulder. X-Pac eventually works back against Elo Brown, getting him in the corner, and he hits his two kicks in the gut and then the big swinging roundhouse kick in the corner to knock D'Lo Brown, uh, D'Lo Brown down. X-Pac attempts to do the Bronco Buster onto D'Lo, and D'Lo at the last moment lifts his foot up into the air so that X-Pac essentially crotches himself on D'Lo's foot. And you could hear such an audible groan from the crowd from this spot when X-Pac hit. And he sold that like crazy. We see D'Lo Brown hitting a running heel kick after X-Pac is rebounding off of the ropes from an Irish whip. D'Lo hits his running sit-out powerbomb onto X-Pac, goes for a pin count, only gets a two count from referee Mike Chioda. X-Pac counters a second Uh, Rope superplex attempt by D'Lo Brown, and instead uh, X-Pac crossbodies D'Lo Brown, and D'Lo ends up rolling through the crossbody attempt by X-Pac for another two count. We see D'Lo climb up to the second rope and drops a forearm 
across X-Pac's forehead, goes for a pin count and only a two count. D'Lo Brown locks in a Texas Cloverleaf. Uh, took him a while for him to finally step over on the maneuver. In fact, at one point, Jim Ross referred to it as a cloverleaf crab or something along those lines. Uh, eventually, X-Pac was able to recover and break away from the uh, submission hold. We begin to start to hear from the crowd an audible D-Lo sucks chant from the crowd, and that's kind of uh, distracting D-Lo in the match itself. D'Lo climbs to the top rope and what JR calls a cannonball. It was more or less Booker T's version or his version of Booker T's Harlem hangover leg drop off the top rope. But X-Pac still ended up rolling out of the way. So D'Lo Brown ended up missing that offensive move off the top. X-Pac on a flurry with spinning heel kicks, uh, a diving clothesline. And eventually he knocks D'Lo into the corner and is successful in hitting the Bronco Buster. China ends up getting involved in the match. She ends up hitting D'Lo from behind when the referee's back was turned. Uh, X-Pac attempts to go for a cover and only gets a long two count on D'Lo. D'Lo ends up being thrown into the, uh, into the ropes and ends up bumping the referee, causing him to fall, the referee to fall out of the ring onto the floor. With the referee being out on the floor, we see an interference attempt by Mark Henry as he comes down to ringside, and he essentially is there to distract China so that with China not paying attention and the referee being down, D'Lo goes to the uh, timekeeper's table, grabs the European title, and clocks D'Lo Bra- or clocks X-Pac over the head with the European title. He attempts to go for a pin count but only get uh, only is able to get a long two count from X-Pac, who's able to kick out. Uh, Mark Henry had ended up reviving the referee so that he could try to do the pin count attempt, but again, was not successful. D'Lo Brown ends up picking up X-Pac for another uh, powerbomb attempt and is successful, only gets a two count from the referee. D'Lo climbs to the top rope to go for that frog splash, his low-down frog splash. X-Pac gets up right as D'Lo jumps and ends up hitting the X-Factor face buster. Same finish from six, seven weeks ago from Monday Night Raw. X-Pac again successful, pins D'Lo Brown for the one, two, three to start his second European title reign. I, I get the frustration with it being the same ending. It st- it's still, it's a really good match. Um, not as good as the previous one, I don't think, but I did not expect to enjoy this rivalry so much. I've been very impressed with both guys. Honestly, for X-Pac, like, he's already had his runs in the two biggest companies in the world. He doesn't have to do anything for D'Lo, really. D'Lo's still a rookie. D'Lo's still a kid. Like, he doesn't have to do anything. But he sees, we got chemistry. We can make some money. Let's go. Crowd's so into it that, like you mentioned, Educator, D'Lo Stepp and the Bronco Buster, that's when I started like sitting up and paying attention for this match. That just looked awful. Even me seeing it, you know, years later through the camera and all. But the way the crowd reacted, I was reacting the same way at home for it. I, I don't know. I'm just so impressed with it. It was that D'Lo hitting X-Pac with the title for the two count where the crowd just went absolutely crazy. I was enjoying it so, so much. I, I hope there's more. I don't know if there is, because I kind of think that both guys are onto other things later on. But, you know, we, we I don't know if we'll do it or not, but we kind of talk about, you know, 
our, our favorites from this whole series. X Pac and Dilo, right up there. Oh, oh, you know what's a good idea? Sorry, this just came to me uh, from what Educator said. I think when we're all done t- recording tonight, I'm going to go get uh, some ice cream and a blender and some cookies and make myself a uh, spinning kick flurry. <laughs> I actually like that one, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. You may see yourself to the door, sir. <laughs> um, so, you know, we've talked about D'Lo and being impressed with D'Lo Brown. My question to you guys is actually about X-Pac, though. Um, he was always known as the runt of the clique because he's the small guy. And um, he's super talented, though, like way ahead of his time. If he was around now, would he be a world champion? Ooh, easily. Be... Easily. Because he's actually bigger than a lot of the yeah. guys now, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what is he, like 6'1", probably? Probably 6'1", yeah. He's an NXT champ for sure. Whether... That's because Hunter's booking. Right. Whether he gets one of the Fruit Loop belts I'm... or uh, Fruit Roll-Up belts, I'm not sure. I, do you do not think he's a world champ in AEW, too? I mean, with I mean, his talent? I, I think I, the potential's there, but they've only had two champs, so I don't know what yeah, they're for yet. Definitely contender for the TNT championship, without a doubt. For sure. Um, yeah, it's still too soon about AEW. I just, he, to me, when I was watching and I'm thinking about it, and, you know, everyone gave him, you know, the Xbox sucks heat and, and yada, 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 all that stuff, but, like, he was really good at this point in his career, and he could move. His style was different. Um yeah, just in my opinion, just way ahead of his time. And he is one of those wrestlers that you wish you could pluck out and move him to a different era where his career would have benefited from it. And, you know, I would move him to now. And I think he would be someone that you'd want to watch on Wednesday nights. Maybe pluck him out of the X Factor era and put him into today. Yeah, I think the, the X Factor definitely did more damage than 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 good. So. Um, so anyways, we get Michael Cole once again, backstage, uh, reporting on the rumor that Paul Bearer is in the undertaker's locker room. Uh, we don't get to go into the locker room though, because the headbangers come out and, uh, educator, you were caught off guard by one of the headbangers lines here. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they were talking about the new age outlaws and how they're, you know, the tag team champions. And the only thing that they tag team is, uh, each other could not believe that that got away on TV. This seems to be Vince Russo all over statements. Well, like that. it is pay-per-view. Yeah. Without a doubt. Um, yeah. So then we follow that up with the new age outlaws taking on the headbangers. And, uh, what'd you guys think of this one? I mean, what happens during this match? I mean, it's pretty much just Billy Gunn getting beat down. Am I wrong? I would think Billy Gunn works 80 to 85% of this match. Road Dog is in for maybe a minute, minute and a half total. And it's it's such a one-sided match for the most part. We see the New Age Outlaws, they kind of get jumped during Road Dog's mic, uh, mic intro as the headbangers come in and start attacking the members of the, of the new age outlaws, 
the majority of the match is the headbangers just tagging in and out and essentially working on uh, Billy Gunn for the most of the match. And most of the time, Billy Gunn is on the uh, headbanger side of the ring, and they're just they're being very very successful while Road Dogs trying to get the crowd all hyped up and get get them into the match. Uh, one move of note: Billy Gunn hits like a tilt a whirl like set of head scissors you would see from one of the luchadors today. Just crazy seeing a six, five guy do this particular maneuver as a means of trying to escape uh, a, a, a set of uh, offensive maneuvers. Very, very unsuspected. We see the headbangers hit a very impressive looking flapjack on Billy Gunn. And as the headbangers are setting up Billy Gunn for their finish, the turnbuckle, are off the top rope leg drop power bomb combo. The road dog somehow miraculously finds another boom box that was at ringside and just gets into the ring and blatantly gets disqualified and smashes the boom box over the head of Mosh. And uh, it's a disqualification, a blatant disqualification in front of the referee. At least the referee called it for this match. Uh, and so still, World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Champions, because of a disqualification and a blatant loss, the New Age Outlaws. Like I'm watching it, thinking, do the Headbangers have a tag title reign? I'm forgetting. Like, do they win it tonight and lose it on Raw the next night? Because the whole booking of the match seems like that. I gotta imagine Road Dogs injured. He's gotta be in in this. I I just don't see any other reason to give the Headbangers, who have been mostly forgotten, all this offense against the hottest tag team you got, and then this random DQ win, but, but it's okay. Cause it was not a JVC kaboom box. Those would not shatter like that. That is some high quality audio equipment there. Yeah. That must've been a sponsor at the time for them. Oh, you don't remember. It was sponsored like all the time. It's where they're sponsored for a good year or two. Ask for it for Christmas. I never got it. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Hey, I had a question for you guys. As I was watching this, the new age outlaws are an interesting tag team to me because they never looked like a tag team. Like their gear never matched. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I was trying to think of like other tag teams that were had their popularity where they were the most popular team in the world and didn't have matching gear as a tag team. And it wasn't like, you know, like the two man power trip and stuff like that where you have the storyline wise, you know, when, right. when you do it for a month or two, but like for a long period of time. A dedicated team that just was very different. Yeah. So you got, you know, Valentine and Beefcake as the dream team. Very different gear. Um, even Sheik and Volkov. I mean, I'm, I'm digging way, way back here. That's what I mean, though. Yeah. Like, and to to be the champions for so for so long, like you think they would have had a, a look to them. Even in being in DX, too. I mean, even if they had a DX look to them, where I think Road Dog did more than... I mean, Billy Gunn's just kind of the outlier here. Yeah. What right. about uh, RVD and Sabu? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. But that, but to me, they're more of a singles than a than a tag. But yeah, no. Because the, the only one that's going on now, I thought it was, was Hangman and Omega right, right now. Right, right, which again, seems like it's going towards a feud, though, too. Yeah. But I just... I thought it was fascinating to think about that when I was watching that and I never really realized that growing up, like, Oh, they just have such a different look and you're so used to your tag teams having similar, you know, gear. When they originally started tagging, they had 
long, uh, Billy Gunn used to wear the longer pants and Road Dogs was more of the baggier type, whereas they were the long, the long tights for Billy Gunn. And he, when they won the original tag titles, they had similar looking pant like gear. But just over time, Billy Gunn preferred to go with the, like the biker shorts kind of deal as opposed to which worked. Tights. I mean, it worked out for his gimmick of being the ass man. Too. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so just thought it was just a little little side note there. So. So anyways, Michael Cole is giving us, he's on Bearer Watch 98 and giving us an update now that Paul Bearer is now in Kane's room and we are interrupted with Mankind and Sako. Another um, interesting promo here, Educator. What did you, uh, what did you think of this one? So um, the New Age Outlaws apparently double teaming each other wasn't the more shocking comment that was made on wwf television for the pay-per-view that night um i i was a little bit shocked at hearing mankind saying that listening to ken shamrock interviews is the reason why they are the second most leading cause of teenage suicide and my head just exploded hearing him make this comment be given that i'm a high school teacher and all just not good not good at all not sure what what kind of pop we were trying to get was that Russo just trying to pop Vince? I don't know. So, so are you saying that the Shamrock promos are not on the syllabus this year? Definitely, definitely not. I would greatly doubt Russo ever wrote anything for Foley. Yeah, I think I don't know what what is going on with that comment. Um, of course, Foley. We we just talked about on the, you know, one of the last shows here with his with his Monica Lewinsky line being great and. He's not going to sell for that abortion of the, uh, I mean, he's getting really, really risque with it, mm-hmm. but still staying within his character. And I think that's probably the, the fine line that he is. He's trying to walk there. Risque or not, it's good. It's a real good promo. So anyways, match number seven on the night is the Shamrock and Sock connection breaking up as we get Ken Shamrock versus Mankind. Uh, well, what did you guys think of this match? In, in particular, what did you guys think of the ending? I was not a fan of the ending whatsoever. Um, it just doesn't make sense that he would give himself the mandible claw to the point that he would pass out in order to avoid tapping out or submitting to Ken Shamrock's finish. Now, as crazy as that sounds, when have we ever had the announcement as to why the submission finish has occurred due to what hold, what maneuver. When when Hogan won any of his championships, did it say did Finkel say by pinfall with a devastating leg drop? You know, or when Warrior ever won his title, pinfall by press slam and you know splash off the ropes. I just again we're we're doing these goofy things that are just out of the ordinary in order to get a pop to further a, a, a storyline, you know, it, it just, it doesn't make sense to me. Kind of almost insulting, really. See, I, I liked it as a mind game fully. Like you will not defeat me, Ken Shamrock. I don't, you know, whether I don't respect you, whether I don't respect the move, whatever it might be, you will not defeat me. So when fully stuck and has to tap, He'll take himself out first just to not give Shamrock that win, to not give him that credit. 
And then Shamrock still doesn't have it. And he goes nuts at the end because Foley outsmarted him for it. Uh, I actually agree with the educator. I was not a fan of this match. Um, I, I didn't like the end of it. It was just weird. I felt like they were trying to. It seems like mankind at this point. You know, the introduction of the introduction of Mr. Sacco, obviously the dude love who then he had a positive fan reaction. Then he was with the corporation. I'm not sure exactly if they want him to be face or heel. And I felt like they were trying to turn him face by doing the Austin at Mania 13 passing out. Um, but like with a little twist on it, it just didn't it didn't sit just didn't sit right with me. Well. I think they were experimenting with him so much to see what can you do with him? Where can you put him? He's, he's a Renaissance mankind, the mankind for all seasons. I don't think it's until the next month's pay-per-view with everything that happens there that they realize, Oh, that's where we got to go with him. So uh, Kevin, since the educator uh, wasn't a fan of this match, I want you to actually break it down for us. Oh, okay. All right. I wasn't expecting this. So, uh, you know, my notes aren't going to be as detailed as the educators here. But, uh, yeah, well, let, let us let us be the judge okay. of that. Okay, so I'm, I'm reading right from my notebook here. Here. Near the papers, reading right from my notebook. Okay. Good fight. Chair shot is gross. Ken Shamrock scoop slam on outside. Mixed legs hit the steps. Ankle lock. Mankind puts Mandible Claw on himself. Mankind is out. Shamrock wins, but by claw. Shamrock attacks ref, and Mick is upset. His move does it. Wait, Shamrock attacks ref and Mick Foley because he's upset his move doesn't get the credit for the win. Foley puts on Mr. Sacco, takes out Shamrock. Also, why wasn't Tony Gurria a stooge? Halfway through, it sounded like Charlie from Always Sunny when he's just writing notes <laughs> and they're trying to read it. Me make money. Good, good. It's just oh, so ridiculous. Uh, educator, how do you think uh, Kevin did with the breakdown? Don't pass up your day job. <laughs> I, was just, I was literally hoping that it, the notes were just like, good fight chair shot bad <laughs> and that was a totally is crit. good yeah uh, <laughs> thank you for that kevin we appreciate oh, anytime, it anytime I'll, I'll, all right i'll see if it comes up at my day job <laughs> okay <laughs> um so uh next we get michael cole wanting to interview uh vince mcmahon but instead gets a new look big boss fan what'd you guys think of this boss man character but I mean, this is a great run by Bossman for his comeback here. I I, I think he did more this run. Well, Some, going against Hogan's pretty big in Hogan era, but I think yeah. he, he did a lot in this run and certainly dwarfs his WCW run. Absolutely. My my question I have, and I guess I'm a little confused because we see now what when he returned was he under the mask and it was unsuspecting as to who he was. Or did he take his mask off? Because I'm a little confused timeline-wise. So, like like I said, we see Bossman here in this interview with Michael Cole, and he's no mask whatsoever, and we know it's him. But then later in the night, with the McMahon promo at the end to finish the night, we see Bossman in his full gear with the mask on. 
So I'm wondering if this was a promo that was inserted for the video, or do you think this was a live promo on TV? I have no idea. Sorry, as soon as he's got the nightstick in his hand, you know it's him. So maybe it's kind of like a Mr. America joke thing about the mask. I'm pretty sure it was live, too, because I believe um, JR and the King threw to them. Uh, so we follow that up with Mark Henry reading a poem for China. Ooh. I almost wrote the poem down. I was going to have you guys recite it. but uh, we're, we're married. We don't have to write poems to women anymore. Yeah, we already did that when we were courting them. Kevin, you... The... <laughs> You would food court him. <laughs> wow. You know where you get a nice food court? Some crumblies. Go to Long John Silver's. Get your own crumblies. Uh, yeah, so Mark Henry reads a poem to China, and then we get Mark Henry taking on The Rock in our co-main event, and uh, what a wild match this was. Not what I was expecting. Not at all what I was expecting either. Uh, during Mark Henry's entrance, Howard Finkel announces being accompanied by D'Lo Brown, but there's absolutely no D'Lo whatsoever. So commentary perhaps kind of sells the fact. Must be he got his you know his bell rung from his match earlier with X-Pac. The ovation of the crowd for The Rock and his music hitting, and he's still... He's still coming down with his music from the Nation of Domination, or at least a tweaked version of D Smell with the Rockets Cooking that he debuted earlier at SummerSlam from the latter match uh, with Triple H. He's going to be getting a, a music rehash very, very soon, definitely by the next pay-per-view. So I'm glad that there is an explanation of the Nation kind of being disbanded or at least Rock no longer being a part. I mean... We're talking three weeks ago, Owen Hart had a match with Edge, and Owen Hart is still a member of the nation coming down with the nation music. The Rock, three weeks ago, in his uh, Steel Cage triple threat match, coming down, still had the Nation of Domination Titantron going on in the background. So a lot has changed within the three weeks. And at least we go to a clip showing D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry uh, turning on the rock in, in the middle of a tag match that he had the main event and showing the two splashes that Mark Henry had on the rock to set up this pay-per-view match itself. Um, Godfather's on heat. He comes out to the old nation music as well. Doesn't have his own music yet. I'm, I was pleasantly surprised by this match, even though it's Mark Henry, a young Mark Henry. And the, I felt like it took longer for The Rock to be over. But, you know, watching these in your houses and all, it happened quicker than I realized. He is so over in this match. Yeah, and I do want to bring up the fact that you, on literally this show, probably like an hour, hour and a half ago, said that we were in Bizarro Land of Canada because The Rock was being cheered. Now, see, I was, I was thinking about that. And it's clear that The Rock is going to be the biggest star on the planet here. right right and I, I was thinking about that because like king and jr would always say canada's bizarro land for how they react and i was thinking i should like the counter would be they're not bizarro land they're ahead of the curve and they're reacting to things before the rest of the audience catches on for a lot of it yeah i think that the wwe has done the bizarro land they say it always for 
the raw after mania when it when the um when the cheers and boos don't fit who they want you to cheer and boo basically when you would boo roman reigns yeah well i'm liking i'm liking current roman reigns though heel roman yeah teeth toothy roman um so why don't you uh break down this match uh their educator absolutely so the match starts off with Rock hitting a stiff clothesline on the Mark Henry after uh, Rock was rebounding from being thrown into the turnbuckle. We see Rock hitting a front uh, vertical suplex on the Mark Henry. Uh, the commentary it was kind of sold it like, wow, this is going to be an amazing feat. And he was able to get Mark Henry over no problem. Goes for a pinfall and only gets a two count from referee Jimmy Corderas. Outside of the ring, we see Mark Henry... And Rock battling back and forth. At one point, Mark Henry slams Rock's head into the commentary table. Mark Henry throws Rock back into the ring. Rock uh, recovers in the ring, bouncing off the ropes and hitting a clothesline onto Mark Henry to knock knock Mark Henry down. We see a flurry of offense from Mark Henry. He gets uh, a, a back elbow, and then he hits the ropes and does a leaping elbow drop onto the canvas. Gets up again and eventually hits a leg drop onto the rock. Eventually, Mark Henry puts a chin lock onto the rock. Rock battles out of the chin lock, hits, uh, kicks Mark Henry into the gut, and hits a pretty solid-looking DDT onto Mark Henry. We see the rock with ease pick up uh, Mark Henry and body slam him into the middle of the mat and sets up for the people's elbow that absolutely just got the crowd off of their feet and all fired up, ready to go. Right after the D'Lo, or right after the people's elbow, D'Lo Brown ends up doing a run-in as a distraction. He gets up on the apron. The Rock turns his attention to D'Lo and knocks D'Lo Brown off of the apron. As the Rock's back is turned from dealing with D'Lo, Mark Henry hits the Rock from behind, knocking him down. Mark Henry then runs off the opposite ropes and hits a big splash, goes for the cover. And during the cover, D'Lo Brown sneaks into the ring and grabs both of Rock's legs, holding them down, kind of like an homage to uh, Bobby Heenan helping Ravishing Rick Rude win the Intercontinental title back in uh, WrestleMania V. D'Lo Brown holding down the legs. Rock's trying to get out, but from the big splash and his legs being held down, Mark Henry gets a win, one, two, three over the Rock. Honestly, surprisingly good match. You know, Mark Henry is nowhere near what he became yet, but I thought it was a good match for, you know, who was involved in it. And it becomes clear, much like we said with Rock getting cheered, it is clear Rock is next to win the world title. It is clear from his positioning, from the crowd reaction, from everything going on that Vince, you know, whoever's writing at the time knows Rock is next. Is blatant and i can't believe i i was honestly shocked i remember watching the survivor series that happens next month and being shocked at that pay-per-view and now re-watching this i'm like how did i not see it coming yeah he's just it's crazy to see how far he's come in the two years that he has been on um you know on television basically i mean to f- from that last match to this match where he's carrying mark henry it, it's insane so anyways, we follow that up. Uh, of course, you know, our main event is Undertaker versus Kane with Stone Cold as the special guest referee. So the video hyping 
the match is, of course, about Stone Cold versus McMahon. Right. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I got that right. Who who would want to see the actual wrestlers wrestling a match for the vacant title? That's not the important story here. No. Uh, so what did you guys think of the Austin Vince video? And I just want to say this. They were showing highlights of Raw, of, you know, uh, of Vince. Uh, Bedpan McMahon was one of them, uh, you know, filling the cement truck up, driving the Zamboni in. What great, what great raw moments those were! And I mean, just absolutely compi- insane. Yeah, and just to compile them all together as a reminder of everything that went on, um, fantastic! Just absolutely, absolutely great stuff. I mean, every week trying to top themselves and a golden era. You know, we'll <laughs> sorry, we'll pick on stuff and make fun of stuff, and no, some things didn't land, but what did land was huge. Yeah, I mean, when your main event stuff is the stuff that's landing, that's that's usually good. When you when your uh, when your guy on top is doing well, that's good for everyone. So, uh, so anyways, we get like I said, our main event is Kane versus the Undertaker with Stone Cold being the special ref, and you know Stone Cold's over when your special guest referee is announced last. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, educator, why don't you why don't you go ahead and. First and foremost, uh, the entrances of all three guys, the crowd just popped huge. In particular, Kane's entrance with the pyro explosion on his way to the ring, how the pyro causes the chain link fence to catch on fire uh, near the entryway, the entrance curtain, and it just continuously burns. Even to the beginning of Undertaker's entrance, I just thought that was such a great, great, ominous uh, uh, appearance undertaker's entrance we get the multiple explosions as he is walking to the ring very interesting how taker is sporting a new eyebrow ring kind of like a barbell that he had um, in his eyebrow just very new i don't remember it at the last pay-per-view that we had just literally had gone over so steve austin's entrance my goodness when that when the Glass shatters, just the whole place, just on their feet, going absolutely nuts. Good, good stuff. I mean, honestly, this Undertaker entrance is something about the fire, the explosions, the his newer music. I think it's my favorite Undertaker entrance we've covered since Royal Albert Hall. Yeah, definitely. Um, the good thing, too, about the entrance is you can rewatch it while you're wearing your Undertaker Christmas sweater from fun.com. Of course, click the link in the show descriptions, get 15% off a single item. I mean, you can't be that. You are Doc Hendricks, baby. Call me the leather daddy. Anyways, man, why don't you take us away? Absolutely. So beginning of the match, we've got during the just before the Stone Cold Steve Austin entrance, we got Kane and Undertaker staring each other down and Undertaker extends the hand to Kane to shake hands before the match starts. And Kane actually does shake their shake Undertaker's hand. And then we have Austin's entrance entrance to the ring. He goes to all four corners, plays it off to the crowd and then immediately signals for the bell. So the start of the match, we have uh, Kane kind of uh, uh, walking over to the Undertaker, 
or I, sh- I should say Kane walking over to Austin to kind of confront Austin for the hand gesture that Austin did to him, flipping him off at the beginning of the match. As Kane's back is turned, Undertaker decides to attack Kane from behind and then follows through by twisting the arm and setting up for the old school, walk the top rope, jump off the top, and do the clubbing forearm over the shoulders. Kane eventually recovers from old school and power slams Undertaker after he Undertaker was rebounding off the ropes from an Irish whip. Undertaker goes for a uh, count onto uh, Kane after knocking Kane down, and Austin very slowly gets down to the canvas, lifts his hand straight up in the air, and then just stops motionless, doesn't even do a one count. Eventually, Kane knocks the Undertaker down and attempts to go for a pinfall on the Undertaker, and under and Undertaker ends up getting a fast count from Austin. Uh, a very, very quick two, but Taker ends up kicking out. So we see the initial idea of Undertaker is going to be kind of like, uh, you know, harmed by Austin's actions while perhaps Kane is going to hopefully receive the benefit of Austin's refereeing influence in the match itself. Eventually, both men end up on the floor and Undertaker tries to hit Kane with a chair shot as Kane's back is against one of the turnbuckle posts. But Kane ducks the chair shot in the swing. Uh, Just that chair slams into that corner post. Such a loud, loud pop itself when that chair made contact with the metal. Taker front suplexes Kane into uh, back into the ring. And Kane almost immediately sits right up. In fact, he gets up and stands up before Undertaker even does. And clotheslines the Undertaker after just receiving that front suplex from his brother. Eventually, we start to see some wear down work as the Undertaker focuses on the left leg of Kane, slamming his leg onto the apron edge as he's standing out on the floor. And then eventually working on the knee of that same leg and doing a leg lock. Undertaker does a chop block onto Kane, who was trying to recover from the initial work by throwing Taker into the ropes and hitting a big boot. But Undertaker ducks that big boot, does a chop block, and then continues to work on the leg itself. Undertaker ties Kane up in a tree of woe upside down and continues to work on the knee um, in the corner. Undertaker charges Kane in the corner. Uh, for Kane to eventually essentially catch him and give him more of like a spine buster like slam onto the canvas. Kane Irish whips Undertaker into the corner uh, and the same corner that Austin was actually standing. And the Undertaker essentially clotheslines Austin, who then staggers forward towards Kane. And Kane grabs him by the throat and ends up doing a choke slam onto Austin. So now both men turn their efforts onto Austin and start kicking and stomping him to essentially take Austin out of the equation. At one point after their double team uh, work on Austin themselves, Taker then turns again on Kane and starts focusing his attack on Kane. Kane ends up recovering from Undertaker's efforts and does a choke slam to the Undertaker. 
in the background, we start to see Paul Bearer walking down to ringside and he's carrying a chair with him and he gets into the ring and he tells his son Kane that he wants to hit the undertaker. So Kane kind of turns away to give the opportunity for Paul Bearer to hit the undertaker with the chair. But instead Paul Bearer sets his sights on Kane and cracks Kane over the back with the chair. uh, Kane attempts to recover from the chair shot and sets his sights to stock the, uh, to stock Paul Bearer. Undertaker picks up that chair and absolutely violently destroys Kane with a chair shot over the head, straight top down from 12 to 6, just cracks Kane's skull with a violent chair shot. So Kane's now knocked out in the ring. Taker goes for the cover onto uh, Kane, but Austin, who has now recovered from his choke slam, refuses to even lay down to even do a count. As Undertaker gets up to confront Austin, Austin ends up kicking Undertaker in the gut, hits him with the Stone Cold Stunner, and then eventually uh, picks up the chair and cracks the Undertaker as well into the head with a chair. With both men down, Austin decides to do a three a, a three count with both of his hands, essentially counting both men down, and then eventually uh, announces himself as the winner of the match. Match is over. Both men are supposedly defeated, even though there wasn't a pinfall attempt. Just crazy, crazy shenanigans here. So we hear Austin getting on the microphone, calling out McMahon, saying, uh, let's see if you've got the guts to do what you're going to do. Come on out here and fire me. We get no response from Vince McMahon. So Austin now goes to the back and we have a camera crew following Austin as he's searching locker rooms high and low. We see a cameo from Bruce Pritchard. We see a cameo from Owen Hart at one point on the telephone and Jr. or actually the King says, Hey, that was the blue blazer kind of deal. Uh, Kind of a little under the cuff remark there as Austin is not successful finding uh, Vince McMahon, he ends up coming back out to ringside and the most of the crowd is still there wondering what in the world is going on. And he's uh, back on the microphone, Austin, you know, saying that McMahon's probably already gone, already took off in his Corvette or whatever car that he had for the evening. And then we start to hear over the loudspeaker uh, McMahon's voice and McMahon is demanding that the screen get lifted up. So the area of the where we're commonly referring to it as the Titantron is, uh, eventually the Titantron lifts up and we see behind some plexiglass, just probably the way the arena is set up for hockey or whatever, we see Vince McMahon and we know now it's the big boss man that is with him. He gets on the mic and essentially says, you know, Stone Cold, screw you, you're fired. End of the night finishes with Stone Cold saying, all right, you may never see Stone Cold Steve Austin in this ring again, but you know Vince McMahon, I'm going to be coming after you. And Austin celebrates by telling the, the arena to hit his music, and he has a little beer party celebration to close the night. I hope he comes back. Nervous. There were like flashes of brilliance in this match, and then nothing happened of it. Like Austin uh, holding up the cable for Undertaker to choke Kane. Like if Austin just kept handing weapons to the two of them throughout the match, it would have been fantastic. Um, 
take her with an opponent that's of similar size to him, if not maybe a little bit bigger, having to adjust how he wrestles. Jeez, I can't be the big man here and do big man moves, so I have to wrestle and work a leg because, you know, he's a near seven-footer as well. That could have been something. Um, the two-on-one attack on Austin. Okay, well, there's still a title that you guys are trying to be to win here. If an actual referee came down, oh, Austin's down, I got to come down and referee the match, and then we had an actual match. Be like, oh, we're actually getting a winner tonight. We're not getting, you know, a schmaz like I thought we would with Austin being the referee. Now I'm interested in this match. Like, there's so many things that could have added more to it but no, because much like Fully Loaded was setting up SummerSlam, this is clearly to set up the whole, well, I was going to say the main event, but the whole card for the Survivor Series next month. And I just, you know, like Educator said before, it's the third Undertaker versus Kane match in a year on pay-per-view. Like, I, I, it was just set up. It's set up for the end for the title for Austin versus McMahon. And I... I wish they would have played up Austin more for it and just given us something different for the match. But, and then I was like, I've seen these two before and there's not even a finish to enjoy here. Yeah. When you, you know, it was funny when you were talking about how you hate when one, you know, pay-per-view leads to the next. And here we have like three in a row. basically. Yeah. Um, question when Austin was at then saying, uh, Oh, I guess I'll start hunting season tomorrow. Is that what he came in with the bang three sixteen on Vince? Was it the next night? Yeah. Bang three sixteen is the next night. So a little foreshadowing there as well. So they did have some things planned out. Um, so yeah, anything else on, uh, this pay-per-view guys on the Nikki Bella portion of twin magic here. All right. Uh, so now it's time to rank not one, but two in your house pay-per-views. Of course, we have Breakdown and uh, Judgment Day. So is there any match that's going to crack the top five? No. I, myself, I don't see anything between both shows scraping the top five. Hellions, what are your thoughts? It, no, definitely not. There's matches I enjoy. There's matches I'll watch again, but nothing that cracks that elite list yeah so why don't we just run down the top five still number one hell in the cell uh of course that is uh hbk taking on the undertaker number two is hbk versus kevin nash good friends better enemies number three is the stone cold steve austin versus dude love match at over the edge number four is bret hart versus the bulldog at season's beatings and number five is the 10-man tag match from the canadian stampede so uh you know after this episode we have two more pay-per-views left i'm curious if anything sneaks into that top five it'll be interesting to see all right so now it's time to rank the two pay-per-views here um, how do you guys want to do this? Do you want to do it at the same time? I think they're definitely different shows. I think we should do one at a time and go from there. No, no, yeah. I know they're two different shows. I'm going to guess my personal opinion is Judgment Day is better. Yes, than, I agree. I mean, it's the Nikki Bella. She's the better performer, better wrestler. No. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking over my notes. Judgment Day is definitely better than Breakdown. No, neither were bad. I don't think either is at the bottom of the list. 
probably middle, middle, yeah. lower middle. All right, so we have done twenty three of these. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> Oh, I don't even know where to begin here. All right, why don't we rank it next to um do you think Kevin that breakdown is better than fully loaded? Where do we have fully loaded again? Fully loaded is currently at number 13. Of course, you were extremely low on it. I was a little high in educator in the middle. So, I'm just curious. All right, fully loaded from where you guys put it. I'd put breakdown below it and judgment day above it. I would agree with that assessment. Absolutely. All right. So why don't we just go down? We will work our way down then for breakdown. If that makes any sense. Is it better than it's time? Yeah, I would say so. (laughs) Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah. All right. So it's going to be right there then at number 14 will be breakdown. And then you think Judgment Day is was better than Fully Loaded. All right, let's move up now. Is Judgment Day better than Unforgiven? Which was the Inferno match. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Whole card, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Was it better than Revenge of Taker? Yes. Yes. I would say no there. Personally. I like that. A Revenge of Taker card. Maybe it's because it's in Rochester. I don't know. Could be. Um, is it better than Great White North? No, that's my cutoff. I love that Great White North pay-per-view. Uh, uh, yep, I saw that one coming. I'll agree with that. Yeah. All right, so Judgment Day will be number 11. All right, guys. So just so everyone knows, our top five pay-per-views so far for the In Your House series, number one, Canadian Stampede, number two, International Incident, number three, Triple Header, Number four is Bad Blood, and number five is Over the Edge. Love it. Fun shows, guys. You know, it's funny. You know, even as you're watching the In Your House pay-per-views, you can tell just by how the paper, the last few ones have gone, whether it's fully loaded, um, um, whether it's fully loaded, breakdown, judgment day they all are very similar in how they're structured and how the how quickly they move in their you know match times and and things of that nature so so all right next week guys we are looking at the pay-per-view from december 13th 1998 in vancouver british columbia so we're gonna have a canadian crowd for this one and it is rock bottom in your house. I am looking forward to this one. I don't remember a thing from it. I, I I do remember the main event, and I remember the finish of the main event, and then I remember how the main event gets basically overturned the next night on Raw in a way that just doesn't make sense based on past precedent that have been said that have been set for. Uh, the way a submission victory is typically held in the WWF, and it, I just was not a fan. We will see. We will see how it how it lasts. Like I said, I'm I'm really excited for this one. I, you know, a lot of these, I, and that's one one of the reasons why I like doing. I have loved doing the In Your House series is these pay per views. I haven't watched since the first time I watched them. You know, I think when you get the WWE Network, and we talked about this, you go to 
your WrestleManias, your SummerSlams, your your Royal Rumbles, your Survivor Series. You always hit those because those are your big shows. But to go through these smaller ones and, you know, before they were all Judgment Day, you know, 2000, Judgment Day, 2001, stuff like that. Um, to go through these kind of one-off pay-per-views, it's it's a it's a fun it's a fun look. So yeah, next week, guys, join us for a penultimate episode of the In Your House series, Rock Bottom. Before we move on to Halloween Havoc, so pumped, so pumped. All right, educator, uh, what do you want to say to everyone out there? Just want to say thank you to my two co-hosts and the opportunity to hang out with you guys and discuss our retro wrestling favorites from yesteryear want to say thank you to the retro network for continuing um, hosting our particular podcast our sponsors for uh, helping out the retro network and sponsoring uh, our particular podcast as well want to say thank you to all the fans that are uh, continuously turning in uh, checking us out finding us on social media want to hear the various questions that you have that you wish for us to answer uh, for our weekly run-in shows. So please, please, please continue to uh, provide us some feedback and questions. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and I just want to say you can follow me at Maddie Treats on Twitter. Uh, I'm there interacting with amazing fast food brands at all times, just chilling. Uh, Big Buddy is always watching, so make sure... You put that tinfoil on your hat when you're when you're buying stuff off eBay. Um, and I want to thank everyone. Thank the Retro Network for, of course, having us into their homes. Um, I want to thank uh, HalloweenCostumes.com and Fun.com. Uh, make sure if you're listening and you want to get some cool swag for the spooky season and then into the Christmas season, uh, hit the links down below in our show notes. Uh, and that'll take you to it. So get those discount. Kevin Hellions, why don't you take us home? Okay. Thank you to my host for another great episode. Thank you to Retro Network for hosting us. Thank you to the WWE Network for the content. Thank you to the aforementioned sponsors. Thank you to Richard Reader for our logo. If you enjoyed the Hot Bella talk and you'd like some Alexa Bliss talk, check out our friends at Odds with Wrestling. You can follow us online at TRN House Show. That's across all major social medias. You can follow my own personal writings and musings at Mass Library and MassLibrary.com. And, uh, you know, guys, I think we need to do another doubleheader. I'm going to call it now. So if you enjoyed this Nikki and Bella talk, I have another doubleheader idea for you guys. They're also great wrestlers. They're also twins. They're also quite busty. Stay tuned for Headhunters 1 and 2. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.